Okay, good evening everybody. Welcome back to Exploring the Lord of the Rings. This is session number 36 now, and a very exciting evening it is, as we are actually, and and I really mean it, finishing chapter 7 tonight. We only have about uh, two paragraphs left, maybe a paragraph and a half left of chapter 7, so we're totally going to finish it. Um, I can't promise how far we're going to get into chapter 8 tonight, because of course can't help but notice that chapter eight starts with another dream or vision so you know that may uh may slow us up a bit here tonight uh but that's okay it's all worth it hey so uh first before we get started i want to i i was just noticing on the chat before we began uh on the twitch chat that there are a bunch of people who don't who are you know there, there are some people who are new and i don't want to uh you know sort of assume that everybody who's here has been here live before so if you're just joining us live I wanted to kind of explain very briefly uh, kind of what's going on and how this works. Uh, so, of course, we're primarily broadcasting on twitch.tv slash signumu. I'm also simulcasting this on uh, through my Twitter feed uh, as well, so some people can get uh, well, at least my video feed and my audio there, though they don't get my screen uh, through that. Um, but I'm going to be primarily... I am going to be uh, monitoring the Twitch chat uh, as much as I can uh, during the course, but the primary... Uh, the primary chat that I'm monitoring uh, where people are contributing to a discussion is on Discord. Um, and if you go to twitch.tv slash signumu, you can see um, we can do... Uh, somebody will just toss up now the uh, uh, the link for the Discord channel. You just go uh, uh, navigate to that on the web and uh, and log in. You can join us th- here on the Lore Hall Questions for Corey channel of the Twitch chat, and uh, we're good. So... All right, so that's uh, that's what we're doing, and we're here in game, of course, in the lore hall in Bree, uh, which you know will be hanging out here while we have our uh, while we have our book discussion, and then afterwards we'll be heading out for the uh, we'll be heading out for the for our field trip here. So thank you, thank you, Crystal, for throwing that up there. I uh, appreciate that. Um, okay, all right. So, oh, good. And Druid's Fire, of course, is all over it. Figured she would be. Um, uh, JJ asks, is our field trip going to be level 20 accessible? Well, yes and no. No, in the sense that we're going to be going uh, up into the North Downs, which, but we're not going to go anywhere super dangerous. Uh, we should be able to, we should be able to uh, protect uh, uh, Lobies pretty well, I think, uh, this evening. So it should be fine. Um, yeah, yeah, cool. Um so yes, we're going. We're going to continue up into the North Downs. Uh, continue to see, uh, you know, uh, where the uh, the sort of the world development in the North Downs. So, hey, level seven, you'll be fine. No, no problem. Okay, I can't promise that you won't die, but there's a there's a there's a reasonable chance that we'll be able to we'll be able to help you survive. And we, of course, we're on the uh, uh, we're on the uh, the Gladden server this evening in game. All right. A couple quick announcements uh, before we start. First, uh, I just wanted to announce, as I announced last week, that uh, uh, TexMoot is coming up. Uh, our re- our next regional event, uh, which is going to be in Texas, down in Fort Worth. Uh, and I hope that uh, those of you Texans around will be able to join us. Um, so uh, anyway, so that's going to be that's going to be a lot of fun. It's going to be January 13th. But more importantly, in the short term, uh, they have a call for papers that's open for a couple 
excuse me, for a couple more weeks. Uh, so if you have a th- uh, an idea or a thought, and you know, there have been a lot of a lot of good ideas that have come out of uh, our discussions here in this, uh, you know, in this series so far. Over the course of this year, I think that there are some some very interesting uh, presentations and discussions that could be had at one of our regional events from some of you who have been making some really great observations. So anyway, that would be uh, th- that'd be great. So if you're interested in that, go to textmoot.org and uh, you'll see the uh, you'll see the the submission information there on the website again. Textmoot.org. Uh, the uh, Textmoot folks have created a whole special website uh, for Texmoot because, you know, <clears throat> it's, it's Texas, so they have to do things bigger down there. Uh, at least that's what they tell me. Anyway, so I can't wait for my second trip down to Texas, my second uh, ever visit to Texas, and uh, uh, looking forward to getting to meet as many of you as I can. Um, and we are definitely working on expanding to more regional events. It's one of the main things that I'm really wanting to push during this uh, academic year uh, is uh, is more regional events. So um, I'm uh, we'll definitely keep you posted as those develop. And if you think you would like to to maybe help out bringing a, an event to your region, let us know. Send an email to info at signumu.org and we'll see what we can do. We'll 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 be in touch. <coughs> anyway. All right. Um, so um, I say Tony says, if you submit a paper proposal, does that commit you to attending? Uh, well, no, it doesn't commit you. Uh, I mean, if you're, of course, if your paper is accepted, then, you know, you need to be in communication with them. You don't want to just like not show up. Right. Uh, but uh, but I mean, if something changes and you have to back out, they can be understanding of that, of course. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So. Yeah. Oh, Matt, it's too bad you can't make it on the 13th of January. Though, Matt, I am, uh, I am, I am hopeful. I would love to see uh, 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 us do a regional event down near you. We need something. We need to do something a little further north than Texas. I think I would love to see a Carolina moot uh, go on. So I think that'd be uh, that would definitely be awesome. So, so uh, text me with t e x m o o t dot org. That should be. That should be the site, I think. So, all right. That's announcement number one. Announcement number two um, is... uh, So, okay. This is kind of a tentative sort of announcement, or rather... Uh, no, and I was going to call it a provisional announcement. That's not quite right either. So uh, if you follow me on Twitter, you may have uh, seen my uh, uh, sort of giddy postings recently about how I have uh, finally... Uh, and to my surprise, maneuvered my sons into reading Tolkien with me. But we're not reading The Lord of the Rings. We're jumping straight to the Silmarillion. And I don't really know. Well, okay, I do know exactly how we got here. Uh, and it's all the fault of um, it's all the fault of uh, of Blind Guardian and their Nightfall in Middle Earth album. If you are familiar with that, if you're not, you should listen to it because it's pretty awesome. Uh, German heavy metal band which does a lot of really interesting. Uh, mythology and folklore oriented music uh, and did a, a brilliant album on the Silmarillion, which is really, really neat. Uh, and my sons love it. My sons absolutely love that album. And so, you know, we got to talking about it and we, um, uh, and we, you know, they wanted me to hear the, to, they wanted me to tell them the stories. So I started telling them the stories behind all the different songs in the album. And, uh, you know, we finally got to the point where we were, you know, listening to it again. And I was like, uh, you know, hey, would you guys, uh, would you guys like to, 
uh, like to to actually hear the full stories because, needless to say, I have Martin Shaw's recording the Silmarillion on my phone. Uh, so I'm like, all right, I can dial that right up right now. And so we started. We started reading the Silmarillion. My sons are 14 and 9. Uh, 14 is the age that I first attempted and failed to read the Silmarillion. Uh, and uh, uh, my younger son is 9, which kind of blows my mind. But he's into it. He, they, they, really, uh, they really dig it. Um, they've been, we, we've been having a good time. So, so here's the thing. So my son, Matthias, my nine-year-old son, Matthias, uh, he wants to do a... Uh, a, a, a podcast little sort of mini series with me uh where we kind of uh talk our way through the album uh looking at uh you know uh, the lyrics you know, listening to the songs talking about the lyrics of the songs and their relationship to the story this was his idea and i'm like yeah okay that sounds like a good idea to me so anyway um I'm uh that, that so so yeah so we're gonna do that now here's the catch I don't know when we're gonna because my son my nine year old son has a very busy social calendar so I you know I I have no idea exactly when that is gonna happen so here's what here's what I recommend the best thing you can do <laughs> if you would like to join me for that is to uh, uh, subscribe to our Twitch channel twitch.tv slash signumu that way you'll get an email notification when the stream comes online and I'll make sure I'll try to make sure to put the right title so that it notifies you about uh, what that is going to be uh, so uh, I'm, I'm thinking probably Saturday, this coming Saturday we'll we'll do our first, I don't know how many sessions it's going to take us to do um, but uh, anyway we're going to be uh, uh, we're going to be we're going to be working on it um, so, uh, yeah, so I, several of you are asking how far I've gotten in the Silmarillion with my sons. Well, again, because this was, uh, the, you know, their, their, their interest is sort of focused around uh, Blind Guardian's album. We started with the darkening of Valinor. I, I had already given them a bunch of background and introduced them to most of the primary characters anyway. Um, so, so, you know, it, my, my thought is actually, you know, we'll go back and do some of the earlier stuff uh, uh, later on. But it actually is not a bad place to jump in really. So we started with the, with the chapter on the darkening of Valinor and uh, we got through, let's see where we ended this morning was right after the Balrogs chased off on That's as far as we got. So we got the darkening and then we got the thieves quarrel with uh, Morgoth and Ungoliant. Uh, so that's the, uh, that's the, that's the thing that we're doing. So anyway, so we'll, we'll, we'll see. We'll, we'll, we'll do the first, uh, uh, the first couple songs on the album, anyway, we'll go through the album in order because it's me, you know, so we'll go through them in order. Uh, but anyway, so this is, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to see, you know, my son has a lot of opinions about this. So, uh, so we'll see, uh, we'll see what happens here. Um, anyway, so that's again, my kind of provisional announcement, not really sure exactly when that's going to happen, but it should be a lot of fun. So I encourage you to, uh, uh, to join us for that. So again, easiest thing to do, subscribe to, uh, twitch.tv slash signum and you'll get a notification, uh, for it. Um, if you also, of course, if you follow me on Twitter, I'll definitely be, you know, tweeting about it before I begin as well. So anyway, uh, that's going to be, that's, that's going to be great. So yeah, uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, we're, um, I'm debating whether to skip a Balerian in its realms. Uh, we'll see. Um, uh, we'll see. I'm not sure if we'll if we'll if we'll if we'll if we'll skip over that or not. I might, uh, but but we'll see. I, alternatively, I might bring a couple copies of the books with me so they can look at the map while we listen to it. Um, but anyway, okay. Let's uh, 
let's carry on. Let's uh, move on into or back into chapter seven uh, of the Fellowship of the Ring. It's funny. A couple of you were saying, you know, Tom, I know was uh, Tom Hillman. I know was saying on Twitter earlier this week that, you know, looking back, it's pretty conspicuous, right? You know, we've done this is the this would be that we did eight sessions, you know, eight full sessions, plus a little bit, I think. Um, on chapter seven and looking back at like chapter two, you know, which is this really long chapter and obviously super important. And we only did what, like four maybe sessions uh, on that. And it seemed at the time like we were going like we were going uh, slowly. Uh, and, uh, you know, Tom was sort of saying kind of feel like we need to circle back and, you know, cause we skipped a lot of stuff in retrospect. Right. Uh, and that's kind of true. I, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to go back right now cause I want to, continue forward. Um, but of course, it's perfectly possible that we might come back and uh, uh, do the beginning again when we get to the end uh, to give it the full treatment, which actually might be a kind of a fun approach uh, when you think about it. But anyway, uh, so let's uh, let's let's continue on. Um, all right. So uh, tonight's uh, class I've, I've titled Departures uh, because, of course, we're not only saying goodbye a very brief goodbye to Tom Bombadil uh, and a, a somewhat more lingering goodbye uh, to Goldberry. But of course, we're, they're also going to be departing in some other ways and perhaps we'll even get as far as that. Um, but a couple questions. I mentioned one of these uh, last um, last class um, that um, we're going to do that one second. Uh, the one on uh, Goldberry's washing day. Um, fourth Dauntless. I wanted to make sure to get to that. And we're, we're, we're about to. But first, Kyle, I saw Kyle. I saw you were here uh, this evening. So that's great. I wanted to address your observation, which was which was great. Another one of those things that I miss. And by the way, I always this is isn't it really cool how this happens, right? We'll spend what, an hour and a half talking about, you know, a handful of paragraphs. And there are still things that, like, we just never get to and never talk about. Um, in the discussion on Tom talking to the hobbits and taking them through the history of Ea and how he was first and witnessed much, I found it fascinating that Tom ends up falling asleep. We never talked about the falling asleep. I always found this striking and wondered why this happens. And it wasn't until listening to the discussion that a new thought came to me. In the telling of the history, does Tom find himself at the end coming back to the beginning of Ea, or in fact, before the beginning of Ea, and during this time, before time, was he sleeping? Um... And if Bombadil was sleeping before Ea, what does this mean to us witnessing him falling asleep in the recounting of the history and beginnings of Ea? Um, okay, great question. So, the general. So first is sort of the, the just the general observation. Why does he drift drift off as if he's asleep, right? And is that connected to this sort of progression through history? Now, one caution that I would give is that. Although certainly the general trend of his recollections is backwards in time, of course, until we end up uh, into this sort of enchanted vision that the hobbits get of, you know, what looks like the dark under the stars when it was fearless, right? So, um, you know, that's... Um, I, I hesitate because, you know, when you look at the events in order... He's not, this is not just like Tom Bombadil hitting the Wayback Machine and scrolling back and back. It, it bounces around a little bit forwards and back uh, sometimes. Um, but still, I agree that the general trend is backwards. So why does Tom Bombadil fall asleep? Um, I don't know. See, Tony, 
uh, that's exactly the kind of question that I would have. Tony Mead was just saying, so, you know, saying Bombadil slept right through the music of the Ainur, right? Because that, presumably, that's what would come before, right? That's Tom (coughs) has to have been before that, I think. You know, I mean, that is to say, he, you know, he had to have existed prior to that. I mean, he's he came from outside of Arda himself, presumably. Um, see, I don't know. I'm, um, I'm, yeah, um, right, exactly, Kyle. Uh, you know, did Bombadil sleep before Ea and wake up during Ea's creation? It's conceivable. It's hard for me to fit that in, right? I mean, if if he's depicting himself as having been asleep. Prior to, I mean, if 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 we are to take that, because let me just say, I don't think that's a given, right? The fact that he falls asleep there, I I mean, I, I track with what you're saying, but I don't necessarily think that that's the um, the only logical way to sort of take that. Um, that he's being that his falling asleep is in that sense autobiographical, right? That he's by sleeping, signaling something about his own state at that time. Like, this is what I remember, and we go back and back, and then I'm asleep, right? Um, I'm not sure that it has that kind of, um, that sort of autobiographical significance. Um, I'm open to the idea, but I'm not really, I'm not really sure. So, but let's for a second consider that. Like, let's, let's, let's assume that that's true and think about how that would work. And I'm not really, I'm not really sure. I'm not really certain if, because uh, it doesn't make much sense to me. In what sense would he have been asleep prior to the, uh, you know, to the awakening of Arda? Um, if he's a spirit, if he's one of the Ainur who predates Arda, there isn't really a sense in which he was asleep. Um, so I'm not sure I can, I can figure that. Um, uh, and, and it doesn't feel quite right. I mean, the whole autobiographical element of it to take his sleeping essentially as a kind of story itself. Right. Um, you know, like this happened and I remember this happening and I remember this happening and then I was asleep, right? To take his falling asleep as basically a statement that says, and then I was asleep. I'm, I'm, I'm not convinced of that. That doesn't feel right to me. Um, the relevance of his sleeping, I do agree that it's significant and it's interesting and we should have talked about it. Um, but this strikes me as the significance of his sleeping. I think it's not about the time frame that he's describing at the moment that he falls asleep. I think it's about the sort of experience that he is sharing with the hobbits at the time. That is, he is, it is right when they are having their uh, enchantment experience that he is drifting off into sleep. Um, the impression that it leaves with me is that Tom slips from telling stories in which he's kind of bringing them along imaginative with, with imaginatively with him on on in, in with the stories 
to dreaming himself, sleeping and dreaming, and they're participating in his dream. Um, so I think that him slipping into sleep is sort of Tom himself interfacing with his story differently. This is no longer a story that he is merely telling. This is now a dream that he's having. And like Alice through the looking glass, they are a part of his dream. Like Alice was a part of the White King's dream, right? Um, and that I think is so. I, I tend to tie it with the enchantment experience that they're that they're having there, rather than thinking about it as a, again like a piece of the narrative, in itself. Um, yeah, yeah. Exactly, Tom. His is the mind that is weaving the dream. Exactly. And they're being included in that dream. And that's why they fall under that particularly, you know, the experience they have in that moment at the end. Um, and when we talked about the Hobbit's enchantment at that moment, but the, it seems to me an uncoincidental that the time when they slip into that most enchanted, you know, when they're experiencing... Um, you know, fairy and drama, to use the, 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 the term that Tolkien uses in On Fairy Story, in his On Fairy Stories essay, that is the, this, this drama that is being, you know, uh, uh, um, you know, made by one mind and, and other minds are participating in it. Um, the fact that Tom Bombadil is asleep when that happens is what seems to me the, the, most, the most significant thing. Okay. Sorry, I absolutely need to tell my iPhone, my Apple watch to behave itself. Um, okay. Um, so yeah, I think that's in a sense, Kyle, he's falling into enchantment and they follow him into that enchantment, except it's not enchantment for him. It's like a dream. It's like in his dream, in his dream, in his sleep, he is walking once again in his memory in that place. And he's able to bring them along with him, uh, in that, uh, in that experience. Um, so yeah, uh, JJ says maybe he got to the, uh, uh, to the part of the tale, uh, called the adventures of Tom Bombadil and that put Tom to sleep as he put everyone else to sleep. JJ, it is certainly ironic, right? Uh, given how much putting of folks to sleep there is <clears throat> in, uh, you know, how often he puts other people to sleep in the adventures of Tom Bombadil that he ends up falling asleep there. Uh, no question. Um, and Tungle, yes, I agree. Um, Tungle, I think it was you who just made an, a really, uh, who made a really interesting post on the discussion board about uh, dreams and fairy and uh, uh, on fairy stories, right? I, I was thinking about that uh, too. I was going to quote some of it, but I couldn't fit it all on, but I recommend uh, that to everybody. Um, so um, yeah, anyway, I, I, I agree. I think that that stuff's all kind of, uh, kind of involved there. Um, yeah. Anyway, okay. Um, now, fourth Dauntless, let's get to your excellent question that I postponed from last week. And I postponed it because you talk about the clothing, which we hadn't gotten to, and we did that last week, so now I'm ready to talk about it. What does it mean for this in-text day to be Goldberry's washing day? Tom tells us that it's her washing day and her autumn cleaning, but what is being washed and cleaned exactly? Maybe it's the forest, but then what about this day belongs to Goldberry specifically? Also, Tom and Goldberry have changed their clothes. This may seem a minor detail. Each of us changes our clothes every day, after all. But in previous classes, we saw both Tom's and Goldberry's clothing intimately bound up with who they are. 
Perhaps the change reflects the coming winter. If the first frost came the night before, killing the last of the water lilies, it might explain why Goldberry is now clad in winter colors. And then perhaps Tom's colors reflect hope for the spring and the return of the lilies to the pool where he found Goldberry. Love that idea, by the way. Given the rather conspicuous change in clothing immediately after washing day, it seems likely that the two are related. How do you understand the change in clothing and its connection to the events of the day? Great question. Um, so, okay. I think that you make a... Uh, I, I think that you're right. I mean, I think that the connection between those two things is pretty compelling, actually. Um, because, especially with Goldberry, right? We're told we hear her from outside, right? But we don't, they don't see her in the morning when they wake up. Um, they saw her the night before, and then they wake up and they're told it's Goldberry's washing day. And the next time they hear her after the washing day is over, she looks different, right? She's changed. Um, her clothes have changed and she is in exactly as you point out, winter clothing, right? She's in, she's in white and silver, uh, instead of uh, silver green uh, with her uh, with flowers in her girdle, right? Um, so that's I that connection seems to me inescapable. Um, and I agree with your interpretation that uh, she her colors do seem to be wintry colors, right? And because of course that is clearly supported by Tom's words in his song before, right? Um, I had an errand there gathering water lilies, um, uh, uh, you know, to please his, his pretty lady, right? The last, uh, air the year's end to keep them from the winter, uh, to flower by her pretty feet. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. So, he says the last air of the years and to keep them from the winter. Um, and, and so this is the last day he was going to be able to get water lilies. So the idea that this day, Goldberry's washing day corresponds to the first day when the lot, when the water lilies are all going to, you know, get um, frosted, you know, killed by the, by the first winter frost or something that definitely works. I mean, I, I so those uh, three things seem to sort of fit together, right? Um, the last of the uh, the water lilies to keep them from the winter, Goldberry's washing day, and then her wearing white and silver, right? So I'm 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 totally I'm totally in agreement with you about that. Um, but uh and, 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 and as I said, I love your interpretation of Tom's clothes, right? How Tom is in uh, more in blue. He's wearing forget-me-not blue, right, with green stockings instead of his yellow boots. Um, and I, you know, the idea of, of him being all in forget-me-not blue and the, his dash of green, right, around his stems, right around his feet. Uh, you know, he looks like a flower on the day after, you know, the, the, on washing day, right? Um, the idea that he's sort of pointing towards the coming spring, that kind of works. I like that. But what does that say about washing day itself and answering, you know, going back to Fourth Dauntless's in very sensible initial questions, uh, what is being washed and cleaned exactly? Um, 
And why is it Goldberry's washing day in particular? Um, and Tony, by the way, yes, I, I agree, Tony. Tony uh, points out that there's, uh, there's that mythical tension between whether they're representing the changes of the season in their clothing or whether they're causing those things. Yes, exactly. Um, and Tony, but that exactly comes back to the washing day thing, right? If Goldberry, if this is Goldberry's washing day. Okay. So, I mean, we talked about this some last week um, and how, of course, it's meant to sound just like a normal, like it's like Aaron's day, right? Um you know, it's laundry day for Goldberry. It's it's that that's that phrase seems designed to evoke that kind of simple answer to the. You know, it's like the day when when Goldberry does the wash, and the fact that their clothes are changed seems to fit with that. In fact, right? She's just done laundry, so so they're dressed in new clothes, right? Because they're all you know that their 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 other clothes are clean now after washing day. Um, so that, you know, that, that would, if, if that's all, if it was just a day in which we're told it was Goldberry's washing day and then they were in new clothes at the end, we'd have no reason to suspect that there was anything more to it apart from the whole, like, she's the daughter of the river thing, but it's a, it's pouring rain, right? Um, you know, it's Goldberry's washing day and her autumn cleaning, uh, and that's Tom's explanation for why it's raining so heavily that day, it seems, right? Uh, so it's it's impossible to think of Goldberry's washing day in the context in which Tom points it out and uses that phrase. It's impossible to think of this as a coincidence, right? Um, you know, that like it's her washing day and it happens to be raining on her washing day, right? You know, that's, and clearly her own response when she comes in and, uh, um, uh, Tungo, I think, yes, Tungo was just quoting it. The rain has ended and new waters are running downhill under the stars. I think that makes it pretty clear that the rain was the washing that Goldberry was doing, um, that she is in some sense responsible for it. Did she cause the rain? Right. Or is she just celebrating the rain or what? But in any case, she's talking about the rain, right? Uh, when she talks about new waters running downhill under the stars. Right. Um, and that's, and that's the end of the washing day. Right. So clearly the two of them are, connected right clearly the two of them are are associated with each other but what exactly is the association i'm not really positive um i don't feel like i understand myself um i don't feel like i understand myself what is being washed exactly is it the forest that's being washed is it her in a sense because she's different she's changed right um Tom does say it's her autumn cleaning. Does that mean it's when she cleans herself in the autumn? That this is some kind of seasonal ritual for her? Not surprising with a flower spirit, right? Um, that there would be a, I'm like, you know, going in for the winter now and later on in the spring, I'm going to come out and blossom again. You know, that, that's, but it doesn't sound like that. That is, I can't really fit it with that. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, 
Yeah, I'm not really sure. Um, and Eric Hebb, that's my thought too. Eric Hebb says if it's meant to be analogous to human washing days, it should be Goldberry washing something else, right? Like the laundry. Exactly. I agree. And what is being washed would seem to be the forest, the hills, right? New waters are flowing down the hill, down downhill under the stars, she says, right? Even the rivers, in a sense, the refreshment of the rivers with the new water, right? So I don't really know. Now, Kyle points out, um, if, you know, if Goldberry can change the weather, what does that mean when Tom says of himself, I am no weather master? We'll come to that. Uh, that'll be uh, uh, in our, our next slide, our first text slide of the day here today. Um, but we'll keep that in mind when we get there. Um, yeah. Um, and no, Catriona, the washing day isn't on the equinox. Um, we're already past the equinox by a few days because it's been, what, four days since they left, since the birthday, right? So we're at like, I don't think it's the, I don't, I don't, I don't think it's the equinox. Yeah. Um, yeah, um, well, but I want to, I want to be cautious because of course we have to think in terms of the Shire calendar. Somebody, somebody figure it out. When, when is the autumnal equinox in the Shire calendar? Um, because of course the Shire calendar isn't exactly the same as our calendar, but anyway. Um, anyway, uh, okay. Yeah, JJ, I think the safest thing to do is to count halfway between, uh, between the summer and winter solstices. Yeah, exactly. Cause those are marked midsummer and Yule. All right. Uh, now. One thing that we have to acknowledge, and Tom was, of course, pointing this out a few minutes ago. We're not necessarily given enough information, actually, to answer all of these questions, right? Uh, we're talking about Tom Bombadil and Goldberry, which is, of course, famously one of those places in the text where Tolkien himself said that he wanted to leave things mysterious. So, you know, we may have many of these questions, which the text just does not equip us to answer. Um, it's fun to speculate and to think about it. Um, I mean, I do think, uh, as D. Schwab says, uh, you know, could the washing day be for both Goldberry and the whole valley together? Are these things the same? We do need to remember the connection, especially with Goldberry, right? Um, to say that she is washing, she is part of the washing and that she's washing, you know, the whole valley, you know, the whole Withywindle Valley, that the the Withywindle Valley is being refreshed by the new waters that are running downhill. Well, where are they running to? The Withywindle Valley, right? The river itself is going to be, you know, sort of, uh, uh, you know, flushed with this new water that's going to be coming down from the rain. And that's her mom, right? She's the daughter of the river. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, we do we do have that kind of identity, which do, which perhaps is one of the things that makes it hard 
uh, for us to really kind of define exactly what's uh, what's going on. Yeah, exactly. She is the washing, doing the washing, and the one who's being washed in some sense, all three. Yeah, yeah. Okay. All right, Tony thinks the Shire calendar has the equinox on the 22nd. Okay, so this would be five or six days after the equinox then. Okay, yeah. Um, yeah, cool. Cool. Um, all right. Well, anyway, I don't think that we uh, I totally solved that one. But again, I'm not 100% sure that it's solvable. Um, but for Thoughtless, I think you're really on a great track here. I think that your observation of the significance of the change of clothes in correlation with the washing day, I think that gives us some of the, the, the most interesting uh, and significant pieces of data that we have to apply to the question, basically. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay, let's get back to the text. So this is the slide we didn't finish last time because I wanted to finish up our discussion of Tom and the Ring, which was really fun. Uh, as uh, Tom is now, I want to look at his very quick transition, right? Um, where be you a going? Old Tom Bombadil's not as blind as that yet. Take off your golden ring, your hands more fair without it. Come back, leave your game, and sit down beside me. We must talk a while more and think about the morning. Tom must teach the right road and keep your feet from wandering. Now that last phrase in particular is very double-edged, right? And Tony, you're absolutely right, by the way. Goldberry's washing day and the connection with the clothes and the, the, the equinoctial question and everything... Great topic. Great paper topic. That would be a really fun presentation uh, at text moot or another regional moot. Anyway, notice how double-edged that last comment is. Tom must teach the right road and keep your feet from wandering. First of all, notice how Tom is not only very observant, very observant in more than one sense, right? Observant in the sense that he can see Frodo even when Frodo's invisible, but of course observant also in the sense that he can see what's going on with Frodo, right? He seems to get it right away. Um, the, the, the temptation that Frodo is experiencing, he asks the really piercing question, where be you a-going? Which I don't think even Frodo knows the answer to here, right? Um, uh, take off your golden ring, your hands more fair without it. That's a very gentle correction of Frodo. Right. Um, you know, rather than rebuking him and being like, Frodo, what are you thinking? Right. I mean, like if you had stepped across that threshold and gone off into the gone off invisible into the forest, who knows if anyone would ever have seen you again? Um, he doesn't go there. Right. You know, he's not chiding Frodo. Um, he just says. I like your hand better without the ring. Right. Um, it's an extremely gentle summons of Frodo to himself. Right. And then he immediately changes the subject. He doesn't make a big deal of it. This is uh, it's funny because, you know, uh, tact, discretion and and, uh, you know, this particular kind of courtesy is something that you don't wouldn't necessarily associate. At least I wouldn't normally associate it with Tom Bombadil. You sort of think um, you sort of. I, I don't know. I mean, I tend to think of Tom Bombadil as just kind of oblivious half the time, right? I'm dancing around 
singing about the color of my own clothing. Um, this is a, a this is a a, a, a very penetrating uh, speech for Tom. Right again, shows a very nuanced understanding of you know perception of things, what's going on, and a very gentle bringing of Frodo. He just manages to bring Frodo back into the community without any problems, right? Erokeb, I agree. This is a very different style from take it off, fool, take it off, which is Gandalf's approach, right? Absolutely. Um, uh, or or again, Erokeb, uh, Gandalf's later, or not later than that, but later than this comment, you know, you're lucky to be here too after all the absurd things that you've been doing, right? Uh, Tom doesn't work like that. Tom's relationship with Frodo isn't like that. Um, instead, he just says, uh, we must talk a while. He just, he changes the subject, but notice how he hasn't totally, uh, hasn't totally changed the subject, right? Tom must teach the right road and keep your feet from wandering, which is of course, just what he's done. He means the next day, right? I'm going to teach you the right road, uh, so that you don't wander off the path. But of course he's also literally keeping Frodo from wandering away right now. And I love the double meaning of that last, uh, of that last phrase. Um, yeah, Arthur, I think that's exactly right. He chastens in a way that lets Frodo still save face, even if he privately feels embarrassed at his actions. Yeah. I mean, notice how this doesn't even come up, right? There's not even any discussion of this. Like no one, um, the whole thing just, just gets kind of smoothed over and dropped, um, because of Tom Bombadil's not only very perceptive observations, but his then adroit changing of the subject as well. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's interesting. Matt, Matt's still thinking about Sir Gowan and the Green Knight, uh, as we were at the beginning, uh, with the appearance of the, of the castle. Um, it, so this is reminding Matt of the gentle chiding, uh, uh, Gowan gets at the end of his encounter at the Green Chapel. Um, that, uh, uh, he lacked, he, he, in loyalty, he lacked a little, um, because he loved his life, right? Um, he is, you know, by taking the belt and uh, not admitting that he had the belt, uh, he is, um, you know, he's definitely, um, uh, you know, he's, he's, has misstepped, right? But he's not going to be, uh, uh, he's not going to be, he's not chided too harshly for that. He's excused immediately by sort of the context in which the Green Knight generously puts it in. Um, yeah. Though, of course, Matt, the big difference there, right, is that Gowan in the poem is extremely harsh with himself, right? He doesn't let it go. Uh, and he not only is harsh with himself, but he harshes off on Lady Bursalak and everybody. I mean, he's uh, uh, not in a good headspace <laughs> after that moment, uh, Sir Gowan himself. Uh, and with Frodo, we don't see that. We see it kind of go the other direction there. Um, yeah. Now, let's see. Somebody had a an observation about Tom and the ring before that I wanted to um, I can't find it 
Um, yeah. Anyway, sorry, I can't find him. Um, but uh, the idea about Tom's relationship with the ring, right? Um, remember this passage when we get to the Council of Elrond. We're gonna get there, right? So next year, this time, when we're doing the Council of Elrond and we get to the discussion of Tom Bombadil, I'm going to want to come back to this in light of what Elrond says. Because um, I think that some of Elrond's comments about Tom Bombadil are pretty interesting in light of what we see uh, with Tom Bombadil here. Um, <clears throat> but we'll, uh, we'll see. We'll see. Okay. Um, meanwhile, let's follow Tom in his uh, changing of the subject <clears throat> and look at where Tom is taking our conversation, right? Which is, uh, uh, which is towards leaving and departure. Frodo laughed, trying to feel pleased, and taking off the ring, he came and sat down again. Tom now told them that he reckoned the sun would shine tomorrow, and it would be a glad morning, and setting out would be hopeful. But they would do well to start early, for weather in that country was a thing that even Tom could not be sure of for long, and it would change sometimes quicker than he could change his jacket. I am no weather master, said he, nor is aught that goes on two legs. Um, yes, Arthur, I agree. Trying to feel pleased is a very important uh, element in that first sentence, right? Um, he's laughing. He's taking up Tom's invitation to treat it lightly, right? Um, but it's an act. He doesn't really take it lightly. Um the thing that I find fascinating about this line, though, it does imply... The fact that we're told that he is trying to feel pleased implies that, Arthur, just as you say, he's being unsuccessful in that attempt to feel pleased, right? What we're not told is why does he fail to feel pleased, right? Um... What keeps him from being pleased? And I'm not sure. There are a couple possible reasons, right? One could be, uh, you know, Arthur, as you're saying, uh, he could be unhappy because he feels guilty uh, and is acknowledging the gentle rebuke that Tom is giving him. Um, or is he upset at being caught because he's still, he's still resistant to the rebuke and he's kind of still wanting to go, right? Either, either way. Um, I think that that works either way. My suspicion is that is the former. I don't think that Frodo is nearly so far gone that he's still, he's not shaken off the ring, uh, the, the, the compulsion suggestion, whatever it was that led him to try to go out the door when he had the ring on. Um, so yeah, I, I, I think that he's over it. And what's more, I think that, the power of Bombadil's words. Notice Tom Bombadil gives him commands, right? He speaks in the imperative mood. Come back, leave your game, and sit down beside me. Three imperatives in a row Tom Bombadil gives him. Frodo is not going to keep going, and he doesn't, right? Um, uh, so, so yeah, I, 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 I think that Tom Bombadil... My suspicion is that Tom Bombadil is able to kind of, you know, jar him out of the whatever hold 
whatever whatever extent the ring was having its hold on him at that point um but that and then he's trying to feel he's trying to sort of go along with tom and laugh it off as a joke but he knows it wasn't really a joke right um uh he's trying to feel like i had a joke on you guys and it worked and that was really funny right we all think that was funny right we all think that was a good joke right this is a good joke we all that's this is why why i was doing i was doing that totally for a joke right and we and and you know he doesn't believe that he knows that that's not true. So I take that as disquiet, um, about himself, right? Even uncertainty about like, what just happened here? Right. Um, what just, what just kind of came over me? Um, yeah. Now we have to be careful. A couple of you, um, uh, such as Valori here was, uh, sort of thinking that the ring might be freaked out by Tom. Uh, I don't know that we have much evidence to support that. One of the long-term questions we're trying to figure out here is how much evidence is there to support the idea that the ring is sentient, right? That it is conscious and making plans. I don't see that here. Um, the impulse that Frodo has to leave, to separate himself from his companions while he's wearing the ring, that seems to be, that's pretty vague, right? That's not a plan, exactly. I don't see any evidence there of a plan. Um, I think that he's, so I, I, I don't see here evidence that the ring understands what was going on. Um, yeah. Um, because all we saw the ring do was tempt Frodo to put it on first, right? He was able to rationalize that. Um, that kind of rationalization we've seen before, uh, where the ring leads his mind into a plausible series of rationalizations. Um, I, I need to confirm this is still my ring, right? Tom Bombadil's messing around with it, right? Throwing it up in the air and making it disappear. How do I know this is really my ring, right? That seems to be a pretty standard kind of ring rationalization, um, for, um, uh, for his, um, uh, for 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 his putting on the ring. So this we've seen before, Frodo having the impulse to put the ring on. Once he has the ring on, we now see him, and we've not gotten there before. This is the first time he's put on the ring since chapter two, right? So now we see for the first time what appears to be step two, right? Step one. The temptation to put on the ring. Step two, leave. Separate yourself from your companions. Right? Um, so that's... Uh, but all of those things seem like they could be fairly automatic. That doesn't suggest to me thought or planning on the ring's part there. Um, but uh, 
I'm not saying it disproves it, but I'm saying I don't see any real justification for that. Um, I, I mean, as you can tell from the way I'm saying this, I think the burden of proof rests with people who want to argue that it is sentient. I think that a lot of people assume that it's sentient and read the text in that light. And you can kind of make that work. Um, but I don't think I, that doesn't seem to me the right way to approach it. That's a pretty big leap to think that the ring is sentient and making plans. Um, I, I, we need evidence to support that claim before we can really move forward with it, I think. And I haven't seen it yet. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. We'll keep looking. We'll keep looking. Anyway, okay. What about Tom's comments on the weather? Especially in light, as you guys were just talking about, of uh, Goldberry's washing day, right? I am no weathermaster, nor is aught that goes on two legs. Well, first of all, what, um, what, what does he mean by that? Once again, we find ourselves having the same conversation about Tom Bombadil, that is, what is meant by master here, Right? Um, what is a weathermaster? Notice it's another hyphenated word, right? Weathermaster is a, speci- is a special kind of master, right? So what is a weathermaster? What is the word in Tolkien's languages that is being translated by the English hyphenated phrase weathermaster, right? Um, I think... Uh, Good. Eric Hebb, that's great. Eric Hebb points out that the weather can catch him. Right? Goldberry, when Goldberry was defining Tom Bombadil's mastery, she was saying none has ever caught Tom. Right? Um, well, the weather does catch him. That's true. That's true. Uh, uh, fair enough. Um, uh yeah, and several people are wondering uh, different versions of the question. Uh, how many legs exactly does a watermaster have? Um, good, Tom. Tom points out that the rain doesn't fall on him, though. So, does the rain actually catch him? You know, does does the weather actually catch him? But Tom, I think that's a pretty good place to start, right? Um, and if we think about it, um. If we think about it, uh, there are <laughs> a whole bunch of people on Twitter, in Discord. Half of you are still wanting to talk about the sentience of the ring. Stop. We're done with that for now. We're not done with it forever. We're going to come back to this again and again. We're going to come back to this literally dozens of times over the course of the book. Don't get ahead of things. Stop going off on, like, some of you are bringing in quotes and things from later on. Forget it, right? We'll get there. Long view, folks. Long view. We're going to look at these passages. We're going to look at every single passage in The Lord of the Rings. And from that, we will then be able to look back and build that case as we go. Um, But we're done with that topic. We're talking about Weathermasters there. And I shan't be drawn. Um, So... Uh, but Tom Hillman, just as you were saying, think back to the weathermaster thing, right? Uh, Tom is not the master of the weather. 
He's no weather master in the sense that he doesn't command the weather, right? The weather doesn't obey him, but the rain is not master of him either, right? He decides whether he wants to get wet or not, and he did not want to get wet, uh, or, you know, earlier this morning. So uh, this shows, of course, him being master over him. So, you know, the, the, the rain has no more power over him than the ring does, right? Uh, he is his own master, Um but he is not the weathermaster. So what about Goldberry? Um, I I don't think there is. I don't think there is any necessary contradiction between the idea that a, you know, if we if we consider if we consider the three facts, right? Fact number one: Goldberry appears to be causally related to the rain that's going on. Right. Um, fact number two. Uh, uh, Tom says nobody that has two legs is a weather master. Right. Uh, fact three. Goldberry has two legs. Ergo, what do we do with these with these three facts? Um, I don't th- even if and again, it's not 100 percent certain. But even if, as I as I believe, uh, Goldberry is, in fact, causing the rain that's happening on the day before during her washing day. Um, I don't think that that necessarily means, I don't think that's a contradiction. I don't think that that's a, uh, that that means she's a weather master, right? To be, I think that being a weather master means something else. Notice the context in which he talks about it. Um, they would do well to start early for weather in that country was a thing that even Tom could not be sure of for long. And it would change sometimes quicker than he could change his jacket. Tom doesn't determine the weather. Tom's not in charge of the weather, right? Remember the difference, again, the mastery issue with Goldberry's initial conversation with Frodo, right? Um, then all this, you know, then all these, this forest belongs to him, then, says Frodo? No, indeed, right? Causing rain on washing day is one thing. Being a weathermaster, being in charge of the weather, um, you know, scripting the weather, uh, uh, you know, scheduling like, and here is the not the weather forecast, right? But the weather prescription for this week. That's not how Tom or Goldberry work, right? Um, he, uh, um, so yeah, I, I, I think that it's and and the changeability of it. Some of you, I think, are pointing very rightly to the fact that weather is a much more general phenomenon than, you know, their focus is on this little patch, right, is on their little geographic region. And I agree, and I think that that's a factor. But again, Goldberry's washing day doesn't seem to me to be uh, – to me, that, that sort of renders questionable the relevance of the the specificity of the locale. I mean, we're not invited, I think, to imagine that in Goldberry's washing day, there's a little cloud, you know, like the kind of little cloud that might hover above Eeyore, right? And rain just down on, on, on them. You know, I don't, I don't think um, that's the kind of, um, I don't think that's the kind of thing that uh, we're being invited to imagine here. Um, So, so yeah, I, I think that um, 
they can we know that they can be impervious to the weather like tom not getting wet in the rain we know that tom that goldberry seems to be able to cause weather but again that's not the same thing as being a weather master and again tom is talking about the predictability or the unpredictability of the weather and the changeability of the weather right these things can change really suddenly and he's not in charge of it right um so he can't tell them what's going to happen um does that mean that if he set his will to it he couldn't shield them from the weather if he chose to I'm thinking he could, right? Like that that's in his power. He's just not gonna. That's not how he rolls. Um, so, yeah. Now, Harnuth, exactly. I agree with you. It is possible that Goldberry schedules washing day on the day that it does rain. And she doesn't even have to know in advance, right? They could wake up in the morning and say like, hey, look at this. It's washing day today. I can't rule that out. So I, we can't prove that Goldberry causes the rain. But I think it's more likely than not, just given the way that they talk about it. Um, uh, yeah, but um, anyway. Um, but yeah, Mungli, why would he bother, you know, giving them the like a magic umbrella from rain or something like that? Um, again, I, I really don't... Uh, I, it's not shocking that he wouldn't act that way. But again, it's not, it's not what he's talking about. Um, so again, I think being like to be a weather master, you would have to be somebody who is in charge of the weather of the clouds and the airs and things like that. Manway might be a weather master, right? Um, but no, you know, nobody that goes on two legs is a weather master. Now, I know you're all saying, well, how, so how many legs does Manway have? Zero. He doesn't really have a body. Um, but uh, anyway. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, yes. And Kimber is right to remind us that the the mastery of Tom Bombadil is associated more with, with knowledge and with familiarity, not with uh, control, not with dominance. Right. Um, and I think Weathermaster as he's describing it, that sounds like somebody at the very least who has perhaps a kind of dominance. But of course, Kimber, it's possible to understand that in the same way. Like he doesn't have the same intimate knowledge of the weather that he has of like the willow trees and the badgers. Right. Um, he, he knows those things. He didn't tell weather stories. Right. Um, he doesn't know them. So, uh, uh, so Yeah. Yeah, I think that that's, um, <laughs> yeah, Blue Wizard wants to know, can one put rain clouds to sleep? Well, Tom could, if anybody could, I'm sure. Um, all right. The last, the end of chapter seven. <clears throat> By his advice, they decided to make nearly due north from his house, over the western and lower slopes of the downs. They might hope in that way to strike the east road in a day's journey and avoid the barrows. He told them not to be afraid, but to mind their own business. Keep to the green grass. Don't you go a-meddling with old stone or cold whites or prying in their houses, unless you be strong folks with hearts that never falter. Strong folk. No, they're, they're only one folk. He said this more than once, and he advised them to pass barrows by on the west side, if they chanced to stray near one. Then he taught them a rhyme to sing, if they should by ill luck fall into any danger or difficulty the next day. 
Ho Tom Bombadil, Tom Bombadillo, by water, wood, and hill, by the reed and willow, by fire, sun, and moon, hearken now and hear us. Come, Tom Bombadil, for our need is near us. When they had sung this altogether after him, he clapped them each on the shoulder with a laugh, and taking candles, led them back to their bedroom. Okay, let's look at his advice first, um, and then his verse that he teaches them. Uh, so, okay. Um, yeah, JJ, I agree. It is really funny to say that he they shouldn't go... Um, prying into the houses of the whites, which seems very conspicuous given the fact that the Barrow White was prying into his house uh, in, uh, in the poem. I, I, I agree. that I think that that's a, a funny kind of, uh, kind of irony. Um, so, the East and West thing. Um, that is, he says to... Uh, Pass barrows by on the west side if they chance to stray near one. There are two different ways to think about this, right? One is there's like the kind of bigger metaphysical way, and there's the smaller, um, uh, there's the smaller practical side, right? The bigger metaphysical way, of course, is the whole east-west thing, right? Um, east is the direction towards Mordor from whence the the uh, the shadows came, right? The evil spirits came and entered the barrows. So there's that. And then the west, of course, is towards Valinor uh, and off towards the capital W, West. But there's also the just much more purely practical. It's going to be afternoon when they pass when they get to the barrows because in the morning they're still, they're not going to be close to any actual barrows. Right. So it'll be in the afternoon. So the West side will be the sunny side of the barrows. Um, stay out of the shadows. If they pass on the East side of a barrow in the afternoon, they're going to be going through the shadow of the barrow. Um, and that seems to be what he suggests that they should. Uh, so, I mean, honestly of the two, I, think the latter is the more likely. I think it's more about light and darkness, about sunlight and shadow, than it is about capital E East and capital W West. Uh, Lincoln, I agree, it does work both ways. Um, but uh, but I do think that um, uh, it what happens with the Whites later leads me to think it's it's mostly a sunlight and shadow issue uh, that, he's, uh, that he's talking about here. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. Tom asks, it makes you wonder who Tom has known uh, who came to a bad end by sticking his nose into a barrow. Right. Yeah. Uh, presumably there are some stories he could tell about that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Mike is suggesting maybe the door is on the east side. Possibly. Possibly. Um Yeah, not sure about that. Not sure which direction the doors are oriented. Um, yeah, anyway. Um, keep to the green grass as well. Don't you go a-meddling with old stone. 
which seems to be connected with what he just said about the green grass. Keep to the green grass. And remember, he's going to talk about the green grass again later on, right? Um, them, walk, them, The fact that they're going to be treading on or riding on the green grass in contact with living things is important. Don't walk on stony ground near the barrows is, is another thing that he seems to be saying, right? Don't you go a meddling with old stone um, or cold whites or prying in their houses. The way that he connects these together, old stone, because no, he doesn't say old stones, right? Like monoliths or standing stones, right? Presumably those would be included, but that's not what he says, right? He doesn't say stay away from standing stones. He says, keep to the green grass. Don't go a meddling with old stone. Don't walk on the rocks. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Eric, you're getting ahead of us there, but that is the passage, of course, that I'm thinking about with the sunlight and shadow thing. Um, yeah, Kimber, it does seem to be more about keeping to the living stuff, being connected with the living instead of with the dead. The cold stone is connected, is associated with the whites directly. A meddling with old stone seems to be opposed to keeping to the green grass. And meddling with old stone is directly connected with meddling with cold whites, right? Coldness, coldness of the stone, coldness of the whites. The, the oldness of the stone and the coldness of the whites, right? Which rhymes, um, but is also, you know, both of them, presumably both old and cold, right? Whereas the green grass is neither old nor cold. Um, unless you be strong folk with hearts that, that never falter. Um, so it's not certain death, but, um, but you don't want to, you don't want to mess with that. Um, yes, Oakwig is wondering if this is like the stone working elves being strange to Legolas. Oakwig, it's, it's not just that. It's that the spirits of the, that stony realm, like the, 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 the stony spirits of that realm are of a kind strange to Legolas as well. Um, uh, so yeah, it's this like stone spirits themselves. Oakwig, it makes me think a lot about that passage actually. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Then we get the poem. The rhyme to sing. If they should by ill luck, notice hyphenated word ill luck, uh, fall into any danger or difficulty. The first line invokes his name, right? And not just his name, his name and the common uh, nonsense rhyming version of his name, right? Uh, I think that Bombadillo is just as important as Bombadil in this case, right? Ho Tom Bombadil, Tom Bombadillo. Uh, notice that in Inv needless to say, they would be invoking his name in his own native poetic meter, but they're not just using his meter, right? They're using his whole atmosphere, right? Um, Ho, Tom Bombadil, Tom Bombadillo uh, is... That's a weird tone to adopt if you're in danger or difficulty, right? Um 
it's a uh, it's a uh, a strange. Well, it's not strange. It partakes of sort of the lightness and frivolousness and merriment, chiefly, of Tom's verse. Right? Um, Sing some of my nonsense words. Uh, essentially, Valori says it's laughing at death. There's something like that. Yeah, the, I think there's an element of that. Um, you're not only just saying his name, you are saying his name. Uh, um, remember when they came to the house, the line that both Tom and Goldberry echoed, the last line of Tom's verse, the first line of Goldberry's verse there at the end of uh, there at the end of chapter six. Um now let the fun begin. Let us sing together, right? There's a sense in which we are, they're not only singing his name, they're singing with him because this is the line that he always sings. And they're singing, to, it's like, it's, it's like, let the fun begin in the middle of whatever life-threatening situation, uh, life-threatening, horrific situation you find yourself. It's time to crank up the fun again and uh, uh, re-invoke the merriment of Tom Bombadil's house. That seems to be, to me, sort of implicit in uh, the Tom Bombadillo uh, um, bit at the end. Uh, Yes, uh, Matt, the powers by which he's invoked are a little bit odd as well. Um, What are they supposed to invoke him by? By water, wood, and hill by the reed and willow. So let's just start with that line first. Water, wood, and hill by the reed and willow. What are these things? What are these things? These things are clearly Tom's realm, right? The water, wood, and hill, right? By the reed and willow. The plants that grow right along the withy window, right? We saw lots of reeds and we saw lots of willows. Um, so we have water, wood, and hill being a fairly general description for this whole country, right? The old forest in general, the land that he's master of. Uh, uh, Alia, I agree. Um, yes, good. Mike was just saying the same kind of thing there. The reed and willow... Again, it more specifically seems to invoke the banks of the Withy Window, right? Um, Kyle wants to know if Reed corresponds to Goldberry. Not exactly, though. She's connected with Reed's, um, but not as much as she is with Lily's. But uh, but I don't see any direct invocation of Goldberry here necessarily. But again, it's it's the old forest in general, down by the Withy Window in particular. Right. Um, and yes, several of you are pointing out that there's no weather here, right? Because he's, he's not master of the weather. Um, by fire, sun, and moon, hearken now and hear us. These are different, right? Different kinds of categories of things. These are the ones that might be... The first line isn't all that surprising, Right? By water, wood, and hill, by the reed and willow. Um, these are all sort of Tom Bombadilian things, right? <clears throat> that doesn't seem uh, shocking. By fire, sun, and moon. Why by fire, sun, and moon? Um, you 
Yeah, JJ's wondering if he's calling it's calling on things that are greater than him. Um, three sources of light, Valori, that does seem to be important, right? Um, by fire, sun, and moon, so by by light, essentially. Yeah, I, I, that's what I would tend to go for here. Um, there are, as Matt and a couple other people were pointing out, there's um, a correlation with the elements here, right? The four basic elements, um, earth, air, water, and fire. In a sense, right, uh, if you kind of associate sun and moon with air, um all four elements are here, but this is clearly not an elemental invocation, right? We're not, we're clearly not marching our way through, you know, earth, air, fire, and water here. Um, we get some of those things, right? Like water and fire are lead off both of those two lines, lines two and three. Um, but I do think that in the, th that third line, the two things that seem to be important here are, um, this is, something that's bigger on the one hand it's something that's bigger than tom something that's beyond it's not something he's master of right something which is above and uh, 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 uh sort of broader than his domain but then also uh, i shouldn't say domain because that suggests dominion right his spot right uh and then but then also they're all associated uh with light um and yes, Finn, you're right that the the ringwraiths are afraid of fire. We will we haven't learned that yet, but we will learn that, right? Uh, so Tom seems to be aware of that fact that uh, fire is going to be something that will be repellent to wraith and white type things. Um, yeah, the resistance of the darkness, we can think of that in larger, more thematic terms, um, like the secret fire, um, the sun and the moon, which, of course, recalls the light of the trees of Valinor. We get lots of, you know, sort of big uh, uh, mythic resonances with all three of those things, fire, sun, and moon. Um, and in a sense, to me, the fact that Finn was mentioning before that uh, it's interesting that it's not like by stars, sun, and moon, which would seem to be a more natural set of three, right? Yes, but if it if it said stars, sun, and rune, it would merely be like, I'm invoking you by the heavens, right? By bringing fire in, it sort of, to me, it changes that up a little bit. It's not just about celestial bodies. It's about light, right? Uh, sun and moon are primary sources of light, fire is also a pretty major um uh, uh a a pretty major source of light um so yeah i think that that's really the crucial thing and yes this is definitely a spell as several of you are uh have have said is this an invocation is this a spell yes this is a spell um it's a rhyme to sing um if they should fall into any danger or difficulty this is a spell that they, you know, so does this mean like he's teaching them a spell that they can cast? Casting spells is not exactly a thing that happens in Middle-earth, but this is an invocation. This is an incantation, um, and it will have power. They are invoking him by his name. 
and invoking him in the names of all of these other things, invoking him by the names of all of these things that he knows so well and of which he is the master, by these sources of light whose power is uh, is able to repel the shadow, right, and the creatures of shadow. And then the final imperative to which all of these things lead. Come, Tom Bombadil, for our need is near us. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, JJ says, do they do they have to ready this spell or do their classes cast spontaneously? That's exactly... Yeah, it's more, it's more of a, uh, a spell-like ability, JJ, is really what we're talking about here. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, uh, no, I think it's unlimited times per day, but you'll tick him off if you do it. Not that I can, can you imagine Tom Bombadil ticked off? That's actually kind of funny. Uh, that whole concept. Um, but yes, music has power. Uh, Harnuth names have power. Um, and any, anytime you're doing this kind of an invocation, you know, I invoke this person's name in rhyme, in song, especially in a song that's been given to me by this person for the sake of calling for help. Um, it's pretty clear that I don't think that this necessarily gives them the power to summon him, right? Um, this is not... Um, this doesn't mean they can whistle up Tom. What this means, I think, is that they can they can call to them. Exactly, Matt, as Matt was just pointing out uh, very appropriately, that I skipped the action bit. By fire, sun, and moon, hearken now and hear us, right? Um, that's the end of the invocation, right? By all these things, in the name of all these things by which I am invoking you, hearken now and hear us. And then here's what I'd like you to hear, Tom Bombadil. Come, Tom Bombadil, for our need is near us. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and yes, Valori, absolutely. This is a, uh, um, it is like a spell to call on a guardian. It, 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 there are definitely fairy tale resonances uh, with this with this kind of thing. Um, yeah, why don't they write this down so they'll remember it? You don't need to write it down, right? They need to have it. They need to have it in their hearts. Right? It needs to come from their hearts. It's not something you can read off a scroll, right? Doesn't work that way. Doesn't work that way. This has to. Uh, this has to be a song that they have, right? A song that they know. Um, besides, writing it down, you know, the more you write stuff down, the worse your memory gets, right? They need to, they need to know it. They need to learn it. Clearly. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> okay. I'm going to stop indulging at the Dungeons and Dragons vocabulary about this. Um, but, uh, but yeah, 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 exactly. Emma Thorne. Uh, that's uh, it. Um, if you have a hard time remembering this, it's because you've never tried. And Emma Thorne is exactly right. Think about the fact that like, I, you know, how many of you can right now tell me, you know, your the phone numbers of your best friends, right? I bet you don't know them. I don't remember my, I mean, like, 
I might be able to come up with my mom's phone number. If I tried, I know I couldn't come up with my dad's phone number. I don't even know anymore because it's in the memory of my phone, right? It remembers it for me so I don't have to memory to remember it. And my memory is get is you know, my memory for such things is getting worse as a consequence. Um, you know, this is, this is a thing that happens. This was, this was an objection to, uh, uh, to, to, to writing way back. Aristotle talked about this. Aristotle was anti-writing. No, not entirely, but he was, uh, I mean, you know, the, the, the whole idea of the written word, it comes at a cost. You know, if you write things down all the time, your memory is going to get bad. Uh, so anyway, yeah, yeah. Um, anyhow, um, keep this in mind whenever people talk about like, the shift to an internet culture and how this is corrupting our society. Just remember people said the same thing about the printing press and about writing, you know, about literacy in the first place. Um, you know, it's, uh, this is, um, I, and I'm not saying that, that any of those things are wrong. I'm just saying, uh, this is, uh, this is always the kind of discussion that happens. Um, it's all in Aristotle time. <laughs> exactly. What do they teach them in these schools these days? Yeah, yeah. Um, you're right, D. Schwab. They would. Uh, uh, Tom would have just given them the uh, the Tom Bombadillo app uh, to summon him uh, in the modern era. Um, yeah, <laughs> swipe right for Tom and swipe left for Goldberry. Yeah, exactly. All right. So they they sing it. And when they sing it, they have it, right? And he claps them on the shoulder with a laugh and leads them back to their bedroom. Okay. And we have come to the end of chapter seven. So let's look at the vision. That night they heard no noises, but either in his dreams or out of them, he could not tell which. Frodo heard a sweet singing running in his mind, a song that seemed to come like a pale light behind a gray rain curtain and growing stronger to turn the veil all to glass and silver, until at last it was rolled back, and a far green country opened before him under a swift sunrise. The vision melted into waking, and there was Tom, whistling like a tree full of birds, and the sun was already slanting down the hill and through the open window. Outside, everything was green and pale gold. Um... Frodo has another dream, right? Now, yes, of course, this is the famous place where, from which Peter Jackson transplanted the line about the fair, far green country under a swift sunrise, um, which, of course, in the film is talking about death. Um, and... I mean, those of you who have been listening to me for a while know that I object to simply purist objections to the film, simply, you know, objecting to something simply because it's changed uh, from the films or from the books. I do dislike the transplanting of that line to Gandalf reassuring Pippin about what death is going to be like. <sighs> Because there's some pretty serious metaphysical confusion going on there, uh, I think. But I don't want to worry about that. Let's focus on what this says right here. First of all, 
First important thing to note, this is not necessarily a dream, right? This is a vision that he has, and it is a vision that is consequent upon his hearing a sweet singing running in his mind. Whose singing is that? I don't know. Is it Goldberry singing? Is it Tom singing? Probably not Tom. Tom's music is not usually, his singing is not usually described as sweet. Could it be Goldberry singing? Possible it could be Goldberry singing. Is it somebody else's singing? Is it Tin Fang Warble singing? I don't know. But uh, it's some kind of singing that he uh, uh, hears running through his mind, right? Um, which I, I don't think there's a reason, therefore, there's a compelling reason uh, to say um, that this is an actual singing that he's hearing coming from out the window, right? I don't think that's... Um, it's running in his mind, it, meaning it could come from... This could be a dream, after all, right? Um, uh, could he be hearing the music of the Ainur? Uh, Matthew Hershenroder's asking. Possibly. Possibly. Um, look at the description of the song. A song that seemed to come like a pale light behind a gray rain curtain, and growing stronger to turn the veil all to glass and silver, until at last it was rolled back, and a far green country opened before him under a swift sunrise. Now notice the description of the vision, the, vis the visible description of the vision that he has begins as a metaphor to describe the sound of the song, right? These two things are one. This, he, in a sense, he does not literally have a vision. It's not like he's just given a picture, has a dream in which he opens his eyes and he sees a veil and the veil is rolled back and he sees a far green country uh, open before him under a swift sunrise. Oops, sorry. Um, that's not, what is described as happening here at all. Um, he hears a song and the song is like a light behind the curtain. The song is the light. It's not the curtain, right? So the veil, uh, the, ve the, the, the gray rain curtain, which is also then compared to a veil, right? Um, and notice, by the way, um, notice what Tolkien does here. Uh, Simile and metaphor. No difference between simile and metaphor, right? Really, really simple thing, right? Simile is when you use the word like or as, and metaphor is when you don't. I remember when I first learned that. I think it was in 10th grade English, and I thought it was really dumb. I'm like, that's stupid. It's doing the same thing. Like, okay, so it's like thing, ways to compare something to something else. Um, but it seemed to me a really hair-splitting distinction to make between a simile and a metaphor. Like, one uses like and as, and one doesn't, so what? Um, but I've come to, to see that there is really a significant difference between a simile and a metaphor. Um, because a simile draws attention to the fact that it is a comparison, right? The metaphor really just combines the two things in one, uh, in one single image. It doesn't a simile presents you with two things, right? Um, a song that seemed to come like a pale light behind a gray, a gray rain curtain, right? So the simile presents us with two things. The song, right, on the one hand. And we're told that it is like 
a, a pale light behind a gray rain curtain. Notice when he shifts, when he sort of modulates from simile to metaphor, which is what he does next, right? He's do, he's making the same comparison, but notice how it sounds, it sounds different. He doesn't present us with the two things anymore. Now he just blends the two things in a metaphor and growing stronger to turn the veil all to glass and silver, right? That veil, which is the gray rain curtain now, but no, there's no more like or as, right? Um, we've shifted from simile to metaphor. Can you think of another prominent place where that exact things happen? That exact things thing happens, right? A thing starts off as a simile, and then a couple sentences later, the same comparison is made in a metaphor. Erechev got it in one, the wings of the Balrog. Uh, first, it's a simile that the shadow that spreads out behind him is like a pair of wings. And then in a couple sentences later, he says his wings, right? Meaning the shadow, which is like wings. Metaphor instead of simile. Um, anyway, um, yeah, exactly, Lincoln. It's, it's, it's a classic example, but that's, but that's, uh, it's a pattern that we can see in several places, uh, in the way that Tolkien makes these comparisons. Anyhow, okay. Um, but I'm not trying to like just turn this into a proof that Balrogs don't have wings. Um, uh, so yeah, anyway, the song is the light. The song is not the curtain, right? The curtain is the thing behind which the pale eyes. So, so again, what is the comparison? What is it? What, what comparison is it? So, hearing the song is like seeing a pale light through a gray curtain of rain, right? Well, rain curtain, hyphenated phrase, right? Um, and the song, the light grows stronger and turns that veil so that the at first it seems like the gray rain curtain. It's gray, right? Uh, and the light is only pale, so you've got this faint light, um, this faint and, and presumably colorless light, but it's being obscured by the veil. So it's like he can he can't hear the song very clearly, or it doesn't it can't it, it, it's not getting to it's it's very it's very faint it's sweet, right? But it's only faintly coming to him, and there's like some barrier between him and it. But then notice what happens: the barrier itself is transformed, just as a veil of water, right? Um, when the light behind it grows stronger, now the, the, the veil, the, the water is no longer just muting the light. The water itself is transformed by the light and, and, and is turned, the veil is turned all to glass and silver, right? So, okay. So, so the song is like that first, the song seems to be, it's like that pale light shining through a gray rain curtain, but then it transforms that barrier. So what is the barrier? right? The barrier between Frodo and the song, right? The thing that was muting, but whatever it is, uh, the limitation of his vision, the, the, I don't know, something about his own mind and his ability to perceive this. I don't know, but that barrier itself is transformed, right? All to glass and silver by the light, by the song. And then it, the veil, right? That thing separating them is rolled back and he sees Something. So this, again, remember, this is all a comparison for him hearing the song. Just as when the veil comes back, he sees the light, or rather he sees the source of the light. Before, all he could see was a light, right? Now he sees the scene itself from which the light was shining. And that scene is a far green country 
opening up before him under a swift sunrise, right? That's what the pale light was coming from. So again, the pale light seen through the, the, the gray rain curtain is only an indicator of the thing to come, right? It's only the light like reflecting off of the country. Um, does this mind, uh, does, does this remind, uh, any, um, you know, Tom Hillman, I'm sure you're thinking of Plato's cave, uh, 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 like I am at this moment, the whole like shadow of a shadow and the different removes of things, right? It's kind of like that. His relationship with it at first reminds me of that. Um, you know, that, uh, that first, all he perceives in that sweet song that he hears, all he perceives is a muted version, like a, 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 a veiled version of only the light that's bouncing off this country, right? Um, he doesn't see the picture at all. And then that separation itself becomes beautiful, becomes itself oh, a marvel and a wonder. Then it is parted and he sees the country itself. Um, he sees, again, thinking about, it's all in Plato, Tom, right? What do they teach them in these schools? Um, he sees the real thing, right? The real thing that underlies. And again, this is, it's about the song. The whole thing is a metaphor for the song and uh, uh, Frodo's reception of the song. Um, so, um, he... So the source of the pale light is the far green country that opened before him under a swift sunrise. Now, what is that? I don't know what that is, right? Um, not only do I not know that that is death, right, as the movie suggests, is it Elvenholm? Is it Valinor? Right? Is he having a vision of the West? We don't know. We have no way of knowing that. I mean, other, apart from the the references to the West that we've gotten, um, the idea that the elves are sailing off to somewhere, we have the, we've been given the concept of Elvenholm. But I don't... This doesn't seem to me anything so concrete as that. There's certainly nothing in the description to suggest that this is in the West, right? I mean, notice it's a sunrise, not a sunset. Sunset would make us think West, right? Um, it's a sunrise and a swift sunrise. By the way, that's one of my, I love that phrase, swift sunrise. Um, I'm much more inclined to agree with those of you, uh, Grimmered and James Stevens and a couple others, um, who are um, uh, thinking that this is more metaphorical, right? It is a metaphor, after all, right? And remember what it's a metaphor of. Remember what the far green country opening before him under a swift sunrise is a metaphor of, right? Directly, within the context of this one long sentence, right? Um, it is an it is a metaphor of what he receives from the song of what this what the song is about. He's not even being given a vision exactly, right? Um, 
it's not it's called a vision after the fact the vision melted into waking right um so we do get this kind of blurring of the lines between the auditory and the visual um but again it's all about the song and he sort of perceives the song he comes to perceive the song visually it seems right um and yes galandar i agree frodo would have no reason to associate this vision with that one or now again i'm not ruling out that it is right and we may see this connected in other ways later on but right now it's just metaphorical um what started as a sweet singing in his mind a sweet singing that was like the pale light behind the gray curtain is revealed to him and the essence of that singing is a far green country under a swift sunrise now i can't help but remember um the reference to the green grass right uh the keep to the green grass in Tom's advice just in the previous paragraph, right? Um, that is this association with life and living, right? That it's a green country. It's a, it's not a, a land of old stones and cold whites, um, not a land of, 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 of death. It's, uh, it's, it's clearly a land of life, but it's a far green country, right? Um, there's a remoteness to it. There's a distance to it um it does open before him right um but it doesn't just open all around him he's not there he's seeing it from a distance right it's a far green country um under a swift sunrise so under a sunrise right meaning again beginnings right it's a morning this is a morning vision not an not an evening vision um so new life, new hope, but it's a swift sunrise. Why is the sunrise um, swift? Uh, I think the swiftness of the sunrise um, suggests the... Uh, uh, the distance framework of this place that he's seeing slash hearing is, uh, is far, right? It's a far country. The swift sunrise would seem to suggest a wonky relationship with time as well. What he's having a vision of is, um, uh, something that, uh, it's like he's not seeing it in real time or like its own relationship with time is a little bit different. It, it, it speaks to me of something remote and therefore mythic and in some sense timeless, but not static, right? Um, it's not like a place where the sun is just hanging in the sky and time never passes. The sun is moving swiftly there. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, So what exactly is this a metaphor of? Who's singing? And what is the person singing? D. Schwab asks, is it perpetually under swift sunrise? We don't know. It's only a glimpse that he gets, right? So we don't know that this land is unchanging or that the sun is always rising there, right? We're not told anything like that. Um, it doesn't seem that this vision slash song lasts for a long time 
right? We don't we don't, we don't really know that. It, it seems to be a glimpse. Um, what's the purpose of it? Remember that we were saying before, um, when we were talking about his dream in Crick Hollow, the dream, um, the the tower by the sea dream. We were speculating that uh, this was a dream that was being sent to him. We were speculating that again uh, when he was having his Gandalf dream um, just the night before this in the house of Tom Bombadil. With the Tower by the Sea dream, uh, we were in particular thinking, this sounded like an Olmo dream. You got the sound of the sea in there, which he'd never heard before and which affected him uh, uh, strongly. And you get... Uh, um, anyway... So, you know, there were several things that were sort of, and it seemed to be a hope dream, right? How his fear dream was transformed, transformed into a hope dream. He gets another hope dream that he seems to misunderstand um, as he reinterprets his hope dream uh, in a fearful context, right? Taking the galloping of what I think are probably Shadowfax hooves uh, for the hooves of the Black Riders instead. Here, um, this is, Mike, I agree, a much more pleasant dream than the last one, Um but it's also the main thing that I would take from this. It is a most, it is, it is an explicitly sent vision, right? We were suggesting that that dream in Crick Hollow was being sent to him by somebody, right? Probably one of the Valar. It seems like this seems like an Olmo kind of thing to do. This is explicit. He's not being, he's not just dreaming of this. He's not just having. It might be happening in a dream, but that's irre, that's irrelevant, right? There is a sweet singing running in his mind that he's hearing, right? Um, he's it, it might be in his dreams. It might be out of these dreams. He can't tell which, and it doesn't really matter, right? Um, someone is singing, and this vision is. This vision is the song, that he is receiving, right? Um, and Amethorn says, I think it's Frodo's own mind conjuring, conjuring up these images. Well, yes. Just like, remember, the, the uh, Gildor song translated itself in their own heads, right? I do think that's what the simile and metaphors, this whole simile to metaphor thing that we were just looking at, I think that's what that, that sort of translates to here, right? Um, his mind is taking in this song. This song is affecting his mind and his heart. And it it takes shape in his mind as this vision of the far green country under a swift sunrise. Um, but that is, in a sense, his own mind and heart responding to this song that's being sung, sung to him, right? JJ says he doesn't know if the vision is in the body or out of the body. God knows. Um, yes, exactly, JJ. Uh, Frodo and St. Paul. Um but, but again, the point is, this is explicitly sent by somebody. There is a singer whose song Frodo is hearing here, um, and we have no idea who it is. I don't think it's Tom or Goldberry. I just don't think it's Tom or Goldberry. This doesn't sound like the kind of thing that Tom or Goldberry would sing about. Um, so I don't, I don't know. Now, Arthur asks exactly the right question. What is the purpose of this vision? Like, what, what, what seems to be its function? You know, we were, again, we were looking at, like, hope and fear and that kind of thing with the previous dreams. What is it kind of, what's the overall sort of thrust of it, right? Um, 
And I agree with you, Arthur. Mere encouragement doesn't seem to be enough. The last dream, the Gandalf dream, is an encouraging dream. Don't worry about Gandalf. Like, A, he's okay. Don't worry about him. Secondly, like, okay, like things were not good, but he escaped, right? And secondly, don't worry. He's coming, right? Don't, don't, don't despair. That seemed to be encouragement, uh, Arthur, exactly as you say. This is not just encouragement. A far green country under a swift sunrise? That's not a, like, buck up little camper kind of vision, that he's getting, right? So, um, yeah, fourth thought was suggesting it brings uh, uh, Estelle. Perhaps, though even there it's not super clear, like, high hope in what, exactly? Um, it's not exactly a theological dream, right? It is, Marianne, it's kind of like Sam's vision of the star. I mean, of course, that's what I'm thinking of, but but it's also kind of not like that. Um, I mean, maybe, okay, like, in the sense that Sam's vision of the star in Mordor, to jump ahead five years or whatever it's going to be, uh, Sam's vision of the star in Mordor is um, a vision that there is you know, high beauty that the shadow cannot touch. Is that the purport? That kind of thing? Is that the purport of Frodo's vision? Is that, is that what the song's about? Um, high beauty that the shadow can't touch? I tend to not think so. And the thing that makes me not think so is the veil. The gray rain curtain, right? This is not about dark shadows concealing something and but then seeing getting a glimpse of what's beyond the shadows and realizing that the shadows are just a small and passing thing again that's sam's vision that's not frodo's vision here the vision of the far green country under the swift sunrise is obscured initially by a gray rain curtain but notice that gray curtain becomes a shimmering veil turned all to glass and silver by that light itself Right, the veil becomes part of the wonder and beauty of this vision. It's not the shadow that merely seeks to obscure and overwhelm or block out the light. Um, so, in that way, I don't, I don't, um, I don't see the message of this vision being the same as Frodo's message. Um, yeah. Um, Yeah, book specs is wondering, is it something like a step into fairy? It's almost it that it's like that in some ways. Um seeing this veil open up and what he sees as a country, right? A beautiful country. Um Yeah. But exactly, Tom. It, Tom says it's already in fairy, right? The, the whole transformation of the gray rain curtain into the glass and silver veil. Uh, yeah.
what if let's go back to hope as hope has been a theme in his dreams so far I'm still thinking about hope and fear. Because, you know, fear, his fear, and not just his fear, but his sufferings, I mean, his hardships, the stuff, right, that he's in the middle of right now, um, whether it be the Barrow Downs tomorrow or the Ring Wraiths the day after that, right, um, these things are like the gray rain curtain, which is obscuring whatever is the source of the pale light. Um, the far green country is this, again, it's remote, but it's living and has a different relationship with time, right? So let's just call it, for, for now, let's, let's say uh, timeless, time separate, right? And living and remote. Um, and, but there's a veil between him and it. And the veil is at first gray, a gray rain curtain, which is an obscuring curtain. All he can see is the pale light. He can't see the country at all. Then it opens up and he can see the country. But the thing that interests me most about the vision, and what I keep coming back to, is the transformation of the curtain into the veil of glass and silver. If it's about hope and fear, that the things that surround you, the things that obscure this vision of hope, this Estelle destination of, like, that which lies before you. Um, if the fears, hardships, sufferings, and difficulties that he is in the midst of right now are like a gray rain curtain through which only a pale light of what is to come of that hope that he can have shines through, but that suffering and fear and difficulty is itself transformed by that light into something wondrous and beautiful before it opens, before it rolls back and reveals that country. See what I mean there? Um, I don't know if I'm right to say this, but it seems to me that the the key to understanding, the key to applying this vision to Frodo's life, you know, to Frodo's situation, it seems to me that the key is in the transformation of that curtain. That's what I keep coming back to. Yeah, Tom is asking, is it everything in this world? You know, that we, you know, the things that we see now, you know, in, in a glass darkly, right. Possibly. Maybe it is the whole mortal world. Um, which is first transformed into a veil of glass and silver and then rolled back to reveal the far green country under a swift sunrise. Maybe. Maybe. Um... Matt's asking if I can if I can see it as something like the barrier that separates Valinor from Middle Earth. 
um, uh, Saifa Rahman was just saying the same thing uh, on Twitter there as well. Possibly. Possibly. Again, two things. First, I'm resistant to simply identifying the far green country under a swift sunrise with Valinor because we have as yet no reason necessarily to think that. Again, that's not to say that it isn't or can't be. But making a firm identification of that here, we don't have the data for that. Um, so I'm a little resistant to drawing an equal sign there. Um, but the barrier... See, the, thinking of a barrier between Middle-earth and Valinor, and Tom, of course, I agree, since Valinor has been removed from the world and it's only by the straight path of the Lost Road that you can get there anymore, that would seem to create a different kind of situation, right? Um, but I, I don't... Uh, I don't see it working. And the transformation. The transformation, I don't really... The, again, the transformation of, of the curtain into the, into the glass and silver veil doesn't seem to me to work as talking about the boundary or the barrier between Middle-earth and Valinor. Now, Kimber wants us to remember, and I think he makes a good point. We have to look how the vision melts into waking. The vision melted into waking, and there was Tom whistling like a tree full of birds, and the sun was already slanting down the hill and through the open window. Outside, everything was green and pale gold. Now, Fourth Dauntless has just pointed out that everything is green and silver in his vision, and then when he wakes up, everything is green and gold, right? Um... Uh, yeah, I'm not sure what to make of that either. Uh, fourth Dauntless. Other, I mean, yeah, not sure what to make with that. Um, um, Kimber, yeah, this is the, there's your green country under a swift sunrise. Uh, right. But it's not literally that, right? I mean, that would be kind of pathetic, wouldn't it? Be like a far green country opened before him under a swift sunrise. And it turns out it's the hill behind Tom's house, right? It's like, well, okay, yeah. I mean, Tom's house is cool, but it's not that cool. Um, that seems to me something along the line of a joke or a pun almost, if you see what I mean, right? Yes, like he looks out the window and what does he see? He sees a green country under a sunrise, which, if not actually swifter than usual, is at least has been kind of swift in the sense that they've missed it, right? Notice the sun is slanting down the hill, so it's well past dawn, right? The sun has not only risen above the horizon, it's risen up so that it shines down the hill. Um, so it's like, you know, mid-morning already. Um, so this sunrise has been swift from their point of view because they slept through it. 
But again, that sounds to me more like um, well, joke isn't exactly right. Because um, that makes it sound frivolous, and I don't mean it to be frivolous at all. I'm not denying, because I think it's important, that there is a real connection. And Kimber, I'm with you. Um, joy and hope and the support of the gods are here and now, not in a vision or somewhere distant. I agree, Kimber. Um, there is a sense of... It's not just a pun. It's not just like it's a play on it. It's like an application, right? That far green country under the swift sunrise is is there, right? At least in part. Um, now, um, Gallander says, isn't this a situation like the dream at Crick Hollow where the light Frodo seizes Mary's candle? No. Two reasons. First of all, the light and the thunder that interrupt that ominously interrupt the Crick Hollow dream turn out to be Mary knocking at the door and holding his candle, right? But the sound and the light were in, were an invasion in the dream. He's having the vision and it's interrupted by what he hears within the vision first as thunder and, and a flash of light, right? And then he wakes up and realizes that it's Mary with his candle. The far green country is the essence of, it's not an interruption of his dream or vision. It is the essence of his dream or vision. And then it, uh, he sees something which is like a cognate to it outside the window, right? There is a glimpse of, or a version of, or an anticipation of that far green country under a swift sunrise right outside the window in Tom Bombadil's backyard, right? Um, so in that way, it's, I, I think it's not the same. But, but but that's well remembered. I think thinking about that helps to clarify that that uh, relationship, I think. Um, no, okay. The word I'm looking for... You guys are trying to help me find the word I'm looking for. Joke is not right. Pun is closer. That is to say, what I'm doing is making an analogy, right? Um, a play on words, or... A play on words is like the relationship between the green and pale gold vista out Tom's... in Between Tom's backyard and the far green country, right? Um... They're not the same thing, but they are like each other. Something almost... It's not a type, exactly, JJ. But maybe, maybe you could go typology here. Yeah. Yeah, Matt's pointing out the uh, the hope that grows out of knowing that there is a better ideal and idealized place, that there is this reality. There's, there's hope is not vague, right? Hope is not indistinct. Um, again, like that idea of seeing past the curtain into the like platonic reality, like seeing, perceiving the real, that vision of hope is not just a 
things might work out and be okay, Frodo. It's a, this is reality, right? Um, And then he sees it. Yeah. Sort of like harmony, Matt. No, it's more like rhyme. It's like rhyme. You know, it, Tom's backyard rhymes with the far green country under a swift sunrise. You see what I mean? That's the kind of thing that I'm, that I'm trying to get out there that I'm trying to get at there. Um, several of the other terms that you guys are throwing out are also a little bit like it, but I'm not finding what, what I'm really looking for is a metaphor or an analogy. And I'm not thinking of, I'm not thinking of the perfect one. Um, but it's something like rhyme. It's something like to like a type, uh, yeah. Yeah. Tony says, I, I like the idea that the powers are showing Frodo that their country is nice but far away, but that they are with him. Yeah. Something along those lines. Um, yeah. 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 Tillian, I think I'm going to stick with rhyme. I think that's the, that's the, um, But again, there's a sense in which it's almost like an instance of that idea. Maybe I'll go back to Plato, right? Um, Tom's backyard is a shadow of that reality, right? Shadow is a platonic word, but it's kind of an unfortunate word to use in a Tolkien context. It's a... it's a, um, He wakes up and the veil is back again, right? He's seeing through the veil. It is like an echo, Mungly, yes, um, but uh, but it's not just a a recollection or something that's similar to it. It's it is um, you know an adumbration of that thing. Echo works. Echo is is okay. Um, reflection, Galandar. That's a little bit more platonic, right? Um, yeah. 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 Mad violinist and and Matt are thinking about resonance and resonating, um, that it resonates with. Uh, um, yeah, yeah, and you're right. Tom and Echo is a reflection. Yeah, I think. I think I, I think we're getting there. I also think we should probably stop. Uh, because it's getting late. Um, yeah. Yeah. I love this passage. This is one of those passages. Um, this is one of those passages which, when you look at it closely, kind of blows your mind, right? Who was singing to Frodo? We're not told, right? But somebody singing to him, and I don't think it's Goldberry, right? Somebody singing to him, and we don't know whom. Um, you know, we're being deliberately not told. Uh, he's been given this incredible, this clearly momentous vision, but we're not told of what. We're not told how it affects him, right? Um, we can't even ju- judge the purport of the vision by its impact on Frodo, because we're not really told what its impact on Frodo was. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, 
<laughs> exactly. Tom Hillman says, this is when I say that nine sessions is much too short a time to spend in the house of Tom Bombadil. Uh, next time we will get to uh, actually saying goodbye and setting off from the house. Uh, so we will be starting on the road towards uh, the Barrow Downs next week. Next week. I always have to pause. I'm like, wait, am I going to be home next week? I'm pretty sure I'll be home next week. Uh, oh, wait, next week is Halloween. Yeah. Yeah, I'll be home. I'll be home. Um, yeah, it is Halloween. I'm still going to have class because uh, I'm not on trick-or-treating duty. Um, that is, uh, traditionally, back in the old days, when I used to live in Delaware, I was the, like, giver out of candy at the door. That was my job. You know, my wife always did the take the kids around to pillage other people's homes, and I was the, like, uh, you know, fend people off with candy from our house person um but our house is situated on a very lonely road and i bought candy the first couple years we lived here but nobody ever comes to our house so i just have kind of given up on that um so i'm uh, i'm i'm gonna be home and therefore why not have class so i'm gonna plan to have class even though it's halloween next week i understand if you won't be able to be here because you're uh halloweening in one way or another but um but we're gonna we're going to we're going to continue on towards the barrow downs cuz hey barrow downs right that's a pretty halloweeny kind of subject so that'll all, that'll all be good um all right um so uh thanks very much everybody um i'm going to say goodbye to the folks on twitter and i'm going to shift over to just the twitch channel cuz it's time for our field trip in game tonight so thanks twitter folks all right and uh, we're going to uh, it's time to it's time to stretch everybody. All right. Whew. All right. I'm going to get the blood moving again here after long lecturing. OK, um, so we're going to go back to the North Downs. As I've been really enjoying doing our, uh, as you can tell, I really like doing systematic tours through things. Uh, so, you know, I'm wanting to do the, like, completionist uh, 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 field trip here. So that's what we're going to do. All right. Um, so we're just going to ride out again. We don't need to stable master. Those of you, those of you who are low level. Uh, like and, uh, me. Like me, I will need protection. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, yeah, we've got... Uh, I see we've got several people who can do some protecting here, so we'll be fine. All right, so let's let's head out to... Uh, uh, we can kind of gather up again at the uh, intersection of the Greenway and the East Road. Meet up at the crossroads again. All right, why am I on foot? Ugh. <laughs> oh. All right. Got to put my smell the roses on. I keep forgetting. <laughs> All right.
uh, uh, yeah, so Brandon asks, are we going to ignore Tom's advice to not poke around the Barrow Downs? Absolutely, we are ignoring that advice. Uh, yeah, though I can't promise that uh, low-level people won't be killed when we do so, so, you know. Yeah, yeah, that one would be, especially if we go inside them, you know. Yeah, some people might come to grief um, if we go messing with uh, with old stone and cold white. Also, envy, empty your inventory before we do so. <laughs> yes. All right. So we're we'll here for a few minutes, and we're just going to ride back north again. We'll go back to Trestle Bridge, which is where we went before. Oh, some beautiful stars out tonight. Mm. Uh huh. There's the sickle of the Valar up in the north. It's the plow. No, well, it's the plow. That's true. <laughs> Actually, I was telling my kids about uh, the different constellations, that there were still are constellations in Tolkien's world. And they started, We were looking for the meteors. We didn't see any, but um, we had fun trying to make up our own constellations for our, for our elves. Yes. So that was fun. That's cool. I'm so happy your kids in the nightfall. Oh man, it's the best. It's just uh, it's I the have best. To wait for my kids to get sick of Halloween music. Yeah, yeah. We uh, um, the unanimous favorite is the Curse of Fanor. We all love yeah. the Curse of Fanor. It's that's it's it's all of our favorite song. Mm-hmm. All right, okay. Let's uh, let's head north. Do you have the uh, the acapella? B side they did, I think, of uh, about Hurin? I think it was Hurin. They were singing it from Hurin's point of view, and I think it was a metal cover or it was a rejected track or, or a deep cut or something like that. But Rachel had it from, the, and she said it was from Nightfall on Middle Earth, but it was uh, harder to get one. I, the version I have that we've been listening to is the one I bought on iTunes. So I'm not, I think it might be included in that. Yeah, um, it's a, the digital archive might have it. Yeah. Yeah. I think course, so. Yeah, this is Rachel. She had to trade like you know, twenty-five burnt CDs from various people in Scandinavian countries or whatever. I don't know. <laughs> yes. Yes. Now she's slapping herself, probably. <laughs> yeah. That's one of my, that's my favorite track in the whole album. It's the, the deep cut about her. Yes. Although I can't listen to it while driving, I get all teary and I crash. Right, right. Similarly, when I listen to the Curse of Feanor while driving, I end up going about thirty miles an hour over the speed limit. <laughs> yeah, that's always the problem with metal. It's yeah, it's a it's serious great for problem. The passenger and terrible for the driver. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. I'm one of those. Yeah, I'm one of those heretics that is always singing metal in my head anyway while I'm doing temp quests and stuff like that. That and you know all the prog rock stuff. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. The, the Lady Hawk soundtrack, Labyrinth soundtrack. <laughs> that, was, that was my jam. Right. Right. That's how I saw fantasy probably until probably until 2000. Right. 2000. Right. Then I think learned things could be orchestral and sweeping and epic. Right. Right. So. uh Howard Shore changed your mind, is what you're saying? Yeah, he did. Howard yeah. Shore and, and Thomas Chan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Tony says he just downloaded the Blind Guardian album from Apple Music. Yeah, it's totally worth it, man. It's do totally it, it. worth it. Uh, really interesting. You know, I find, uh, you know, many of the, the, I mean, just even thinking of it, uh, first of all, like, 
I'm in love with the concept. I mean, just anybody saying we're going to do like a narrative album, you know, uh, touching on like major like themes and events from the Silmarillion. I mean, what's not to love about that concept? Um, but, uh, uh, but even apart from that, um, it's, uh, um, I say pine leaf is very kindly helping to, to, uh, de-wolf the countryside as we go through here. Um, but, um, Anyway, uh, yeah, so I, um, I, I, I love the concept, but even just thinking of it as an adaptation, uh, it's really interesting to see what they're doing in the lyrics of, of, uh, of, of their songs. That's what, uh, yeah. that's what my son and I are going to be discussing primarily, sort of thinking sure. about the themes. Of the... You know, that's actually how I found you guys. You know, I was listening, Rachel was playing it in her car, and I was asking her all about it, and she's like, oh, it's about the Silmarillion, and I'm like, well, I, I never finished that book. I, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm not that big a Tolkien fan, and then she started going in all the points that you did when you were dissecting it. Right, in the Silmarillion uh, seminar? And then, yeah, she, yeah. she started playing, hey, let me introduce you to this guy, <laughs> his podcast, and what he's doing, and about the new Hobbit movies that are coming out, and the predictions they're making, and that's how this whole thing started. Yeah. You know, she was playing nightfall in the middle there you go there you go it's like the rainbow connection that's right electric guitars (laughs) so i'm hoping you will be recording the podcast because i'll have to listen oh definitely definitely we always have our meetings on saturday we always say we're like oh and we're gonna go and lord of the rings afterwards and play stuff or we're gonna open up that DD campaign we started last year right and it never happens. Work just keeps going. Yeah. Okay. All right. So we are across the trestle span, and we're just going to head north here because I don't want to go into Nanwethrin, which is the big orc camp. Um, because that would be far too dangerous for lower level people. And it's a little bit low yield anyway. I mean, it's kind of interesting as a like study of orc culture to some extent, but it's, uh, um, it's, it's a big old orc camp. And not quite where we are. We'll have plenty of opportunity to study orc culture later. Exactly. Exactly. Man, how fast is this horse? I think a bunch of people stopped in Trestle Bridge back there. Yeah, I know. It's all the people who got the new horses are all just sitting there going, why are we leaving everyone in the dust right now? <laughs> These are good horses, i got to say. All Probably right. so you could run away from the even deadlier mobs they got up there. Okay. Uh, I'll wait here at the junction as we're leaving the greenway. Look at that, a little pine leaf on foot keeping up with the horses. Aww. It's pretty intense. Yeah, I don't know how pine leaf is that. <laughs> All right. There goes our last few. Okay, so this is a spot that we've gotten to the last couple times. Um, there's uh, Emon Wrythe up on the hilltop there. 
or Emon Wright, I suppose, is the hilltop. Um, okay. All right. So now we're going to go back to thinking about we're going it's uh it's it's ruin spotting time. We're going back to thinking about the kingdom of Arnor and remember as we've shifted from Evendim and we've moved east into the North Downs, we are moving forward in history from the old kingdom of Arnor in the time of the of the first what nine or 10 kings um down to um uh up to um um the section which is the which of course fornos right up this road here where we went before through the deadland um is which we can just see kind of actually sort of cool as a cool silhouette in front of the stars there a shadow in front of the stars is the ruin of fornos which was the capital of arthodyne and the and the 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 military center um but this land is the beginning of this sort of contested land. The kingdom of Arthodyne stretched through here. Um, but we have, we are very much in the time frame of the three different divided kingdoms, Arthodyne and Rudaur uh, and Cardolan. Now we know that Cardolan was primarily, you primarily find them south of Bree. Um, and the primary place, primary geographic location with which they were associated was the Barrow Downs. It was it was on the Barrow Downs that the kingdom of the people of Cardolan made their last stand before they kind of got wiped out. So, um, but Rudaur was kind of the biggest problem. Rudaur were the ones that uh, really defected over yeah. to. Uh, to Angmar, to serve Angmar. Okay, so here we are. We're heading north and east through the North Downs, up the steep hills, and at the top of this, down right there's the watchtower, Emon Wrath over there, which we saw earlier. Now we have Minas Vrun. Now, let me check out this symbol. Huh. Iron crown. Looks like an iron crown, doesn't it? But of course it's also, and this is much clear, you can see this much more clearly when this is on a colored banner. Uh-huh. Those are also trees with... Oh. Dark shadow, dark or bloody shadows underneath them. This is the this is uh, this is a forest, which also does look uncoincidentally like a crown. Uh, these trees arrayed in this uh, in this shape like a crown, and you'll notice they the symbol up above uh, at the top of the arches, and that I take to be um, the uh, um, the scepter of Anuminus. So the scepter of Anuminus, which is of course the symbol of rulership of the entire kingdom of Arnor. So this woodland crown image is the symbol of Rudaur, and uh, which of course you can figure out because Rudaur it means uh, the the name it it refers to woods um, uh-huh. to forests. It's 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 in the name. So so it so it it makes sense. And of course the sort of 
resonance between the the tree symbol here and uh and the fact that it does look like exactly Valoria. it's the first thing i always think of too when i see it is it looks like an iron crown right but it's actually trees forming uh forming an iron crown um and again that that seems that strikes me as very interesting and significant right because of course rudauer allied itself with Angmar, and it didn't just do this randomly, right? The way that this happened was the people of Rudauer um, were mingled with the hillmen. Uh, so there are these non-Numenorean peoples that live up in this region, kind of like the Brelanders, right? Who are also non-Numenorean people who were native to this region. Um, but the hillmen that were up on the outskirts of Angmar had already sworn allegiance to Angmar. That's the problem. So, uh, you know, they have these Hillmen with ancestral Angmarim loyalties uh, with which they become merged so that the uh, the Dunedain sub-kingdom of Rudaur um, soon becomes a pawn of, uh, of the kingdom of Angmar. Yeah. Uh, and associated with the Iron Crown. So the whole, this whole image of like a, a forest, which is, you know, a nice and wholesome. Organic. And, yeah, organic living symbol, but how the forest has itself like merged into this image of an iron crown. You know, it just seems to me like a very apt uh, yeah, symbol like for Rudolph. Sort of, that was another thing he was being a puppet with. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And again, and I take the uh, um, the scepter which of course is right above the root hour symbol, right. That we see in each one of these arches, um, that to be, you know, a sort of non subtle hint, right. That the, the, the people of root hour see themselves as, uh, the true leaders, the true leaders. Exactly. The, the, the true, um, uh, heirs, uh, the rightful rulers of Arnor yeah. as a whole. Um, so if we look at the map and where we are, this is interesting because this, Ruin, um, if this is a, a Rudauran ruin, we're quite close to Fornost. You know, you can see that um, one of the things that it suggests, which I think is borne out in the way that we, when we read about the, the, uh, the Dunedain civil wars, the boundaries are kind of uncertain, right? Because, I mean, this is, you know, what happened was not... The, uh, the Arnorian civil wars it wasn't a regional thing. You know, it wasn't like the American Savoy. It, it wasn't like North versus South or something like that. Um, it was more like the entire nation of Arnor, you know, sort of dissolving from within uh, because it was family based. It wasn't, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't, it wasn't regional, as I say. It was dissolved into warring clans. Exactly. Exactly. So in that way, it was, it was almost more like the, uh, the English Civil War, like I'm thinking of Oliver Cromwell, uh, than it was like the American Civil War, which was, you know, the northern states versus the southern states. There weren't those kinds of uh, strict or, geographical lines. Or the War of the Roses, too. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah, where do you have different loyalties. And so there are some parts of the, you know, of the, you know there's, some, there's some locations which are, you know, whose loyalty is much, much firmer, right? Um yeah, you got the, the, the Yorks and the Lancasters, and then you got everyone who's just sort of waiting and watching. Right, right. Yeah, now, Aruron is asking, how does it compare with Gondor's kinstrife? And 
in a sense, it's well. The main difference between uh, with the Gondorian kin strife is that the Gondorian kin strife was was binary. You know, it was uh, this guy is the rightful king, but there's a bunch of people who say he shouldn't be the king, and this other dude should be instead. So there's you know, it's it's. Um, a faction of people within the nation that are rebelling against this other person being, you know, this one person being king. Um, you get that a lot in royalty. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, where it, any big family name change after any big death of a major monarch, there's always that dispute going on. Right. Exactly. And that's more of the kind of thing with the, with the, the dissolving of the kingdom of Arnor, because, there you have three claimants to the throne, essentially, yeah. and the different factions who each one think they should be king. That's why we get the we get the scepter, right? Uh-huh. Uh, here, you know, the, the question of who's going to have the scepter. Now, Arthodyne physically, the king of Arthodyne physically had the scepter. Um, uh, so they're sort of technically the the rulers, but um, but each one of the each one of the kingdoms uh, claims it. So unlike in the Kinstrafe, there wasn't a clear cut. This person is the king. This person is the again with the kin strife. It was this person is the obvious heir of the king. We just don't want him, right? You know, we think that he's questionable, so we're gonna we're gonna uh, shoot for somebody else instead of for him. Um, it's like that nonsense where they had to import a king from Germany after uh, I think the Stuart line, yeah, fell, fell out. <laughs> right, right, <laughs> exactly. All these little little guys gone. I need. To be, I'm the fifth cousin of the king. I'm the twelfth cousin of the queen. Yes, exactly, exactly. Um, and uh, Eric, have I agree, it does seem a little bit strange that, uh, I mean, if this is a stronghold of, of Rudauer so close to Fornos, it seems weird that the capital of, uh, of Arthodyne would be essentially on the frontier, right, with Rudauer. Yeah. Um, but I agree with Eric Heb that, that it does make sense, you know, when your primary defensive mechanism is fortification, right? Um, well, and a giant cliff. Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, it's... a vantage point and you're unassailable from, like, two sides. Right. It's their strongest point and they want, you know, so it's good for it to be right there. Like, you can't, yeah. you, you know, it... I would almost say that, like, the cause and effect goes differently, right? Um, yeah. Fornos becomes their capital because it is the strong point on the frontier. Like it is the, the place where they draw, where Arthodyne draws the line in the sand and says, you know, yeah. you can't get us here. You can't get past here. And you can see it's all sort of the battle of the heights too. Which one is higher up on the hills? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's true actually. So uh, Minas Run here is up on a down, but if we look over, which we won't be able to see too clearly, but uh Yeah. Yeah, you can see it's actually fairly fairly equal, at least with the lower wall. You can just see the lower wall, the outer wall of Fornos down here, yeah, yeah. which is pretty much at eye level from here. Um, the central keep is higher. Um, but, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's definitely one of those uh, <laughs> little, little compensation plans over there. <laughs> right, right. Right, exactly. Um, and it's turtles all the way down. Yep. Okay. So this, you know, what is, you know, what is this? Is this a, is this a palace? You know, when we look up here, when we come further in, 
when we come both further up and further in up here, um, this sort of colonnade area is obviously looks much, much more casual, right? Of course, it's facing the cliff on that side. So no one's, it's not going to come under assault from there. No, um, just to look at, not to get in. <laughs> exactly. Um, notice here we see this uh, large paving stone with, or not paving stone, but this large uh, circular dais with the, the big root hour symbol yeah. Here and notice how they have the how they have the root hour crown set within a seven point. Uh, uh, no, it's not a seven pointed star. This is a six pointed star, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And he's got a crown that looks like his trees, but also kind of looks like the Angmar crown. Yes. That is. I'm not. I mean, it's all broken up, so you can't quite see it. But that is a six pointed star, isn't it? Yeah. I hadn't yeah. I hadn't noticed that before cuz the seven the, the Numenorean stars are seven pointed that we see in all of the Arnorian ruins through Bree and through the Shire and that we were looking at over in Evendim. Um Well, yeah, let's let's uh let's wait to draw conclusions until we can see one a little bit more fully than that. Yeah. Do we have any over here inside the colonnade? I don't think so. When I say these are all in squares. Oh, hang on. One of the, one of the six is sort of the whole. Uh, yeah, no, it is six pointed. Uh, yeah, it is six pointed. It's almost like he's declaring himself the the, the uh, separate from the star. Right. He That's, is the seven. Now look at this guy. <laughs> Subtle. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, check out the crown right there. Yeah. He's wearing the crown and holding the sword. And the orb. And a, And that's probably... That's probably a Palantir, right, that he's yeah. holding? Yeah, you'd, Palantir. You'd think. But orbs have always been used by kings as a symbol of being in control of the world. Right, right. But of course, it's it's particularly significant since the possession of the Palantiri was one of the the main points of contention between the kingdoms of of, uh, of you know the the, the three sub kingdoms of Arnor and a huge military advantage. Yes, yes, exactly, and all and well, there were three, of course, up here in the north. One of which was the one out in the Elf Towers, which is only useful for looking west over the sea. So there were two which were of primary sort of tactical usefulness, right? And uh, um, and both of them were possessed by Arthodyne. And of course, both of them lost by King Arvegui in the ship uh, where we met his suave-looking ghost a couple weeks back. Um, so wishful thinking? Uh, yeah, I do think this is wishful thinking. This seems to be... The, the sword, too, seems... Yes, he's he's hold he's holding upright an unsheathed sword, right, which suggests a king at war. Um, and the blade is up, right? So you know he's holding it in his hand and the blade is up, so he's not holding it like with the blade down as if it were just like a sign of vigilance or something like that. This is uh -huh. him holding the sword with the sword up and then the palantir in his left hand. Um and he's wearing a crown, so I don't know which like Rudaurin king this dude is, but he presumably is a Rudaurin king. Um, and th you can tell that by the fact that he's wearing a crown. 
right? I mean, the king of uh, of, of of Arnor, the king of Arthedain, wouldn't wear a crown. He would he would be wielding the scepter of Anuminus. Yeah. Um, yeah, he's not. He doesn't have a scepter, does he? No, he doesn't. Just the just the 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 Palantir. So, yeah, I mean, that's how Weathertop got destroyed. Was in the in the wars over who would control the Palantir from there. Because the other Palantir was at Anuminus, which, of course, the king of Arthedain had uh, with him at Fornos, presumably. Um, yeah, I think it's, it's interesting that he chose to predict he would have a Palantir, but not the scepter in that statue, though. It is. But, but see, there I'm not sure. Yeah, and because, I mean, you're right. If you're going to make a wish fulfillment statue, why don't you make him holding the scepter of Anuminus, right? But it seems to be, I don't know, I, like... I don't think that this is necessarily because I mean, if you look behind him, there's a very prominent carving of the statue of the scepter of Anuminus, like right yeah, on the, the biggest one. Yeah, right on the on the wall behind him there. So, um, you know, I don't think that they're, uh, you know, abjuring the scepter by any means. But um, I think what they wanted to do was to go with the with the warlike thing, right? Huh. Um, this is meant to be a little bit more aggressive, more threatening. Yeah. Um, look, look what I'm going to do to you guys. Kind of. Yes. Yes. And Eric, I was thinking the same thing. Uh, look at how the in the uh, in the wall behind him, how you get the scepter of Anuminus with the Rudaran crown right above it. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, as if the you know the the their forest symbol is crowning the scepter of Anuminus. As Eric suggests, um, it looks like they're they're seeking almost to subordinate the Arnorian scepter. To the Rudaran symbol, there. Of Rudar. yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, now, Aragorn, I was thinking too. Of, of course, uh, as Aragorn points out here, the um, the statue is of a different stone than the wood around, a, a, a quite different color. Um, of course, that's in part because it's glowing. Um, let me uh, accept this quest to stop the from glowing. That's a good question we go. you're exploring out here. <laughs> yes. Yes, it is. Um, but, it's not uh, glowing for me. I'm too low level. <laughs> oh, you're too low level. Right. Yeah. Let's see. Well, it is a, uh, what is it? Uh, it's a level 25 quest. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, but anyway, well, what's uh, the text box say it is? What, what does it say? The statue is? Yeah. It doesn't. It, it, ugh, man. No, it just talks about statue of uh, in, in in Minas Run, missing relics throughout Minas Run. Gotcha. Um, yeah, it says uh, after examining the Arnorian statue at Minas Run. Arnorian is pretty generic there. Yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah. So anyway, so Aragorn's uh, uh, sensible question there is: Does this suggest a different? Like provenance, you know, a different dating of the statue compared with the with with the ruin. Um, I wouldn't think so, given how it's set on a pedestal and set on this big old you know dais here in the middle of the thing. I wouldn't think that it would. I mean, that it would be made from a different kind of stone wouldn't be very surprising, right? I mean, that would be like making a marble statue in the middle of a you know a, a uh, a fortress that you would not make out of marble, obviously. So yeah, you would, yeah, that makes yeah that in itself makes way more sense than yeah. I, I had a comment about the standing stones. We'll get into next time. Oh yes, yes. 
Um, about an important stone in that case. <laughs> yes. Yes, I agree. But I agree. yeah, in this case, you, he's made of marble because that's the stone you make statues out of, I guess. Yeah. I wish we could see his face more clearly, but I, we can't really see yeah. his face. It's a bit eroded. I'm on my lowest level setting, so I don't get kicked off again. <laughs> yeah. No, even on even on high, even on ultra high, you can't see his features, his facial features I can see very those much. Trees pretty well back there now. They're a lot more clear as uh, being. Yes. Trees. Yes. Uh, yes. This is much more visible. I don't see any pine trees though. All the ones in Farnos look like a different kind of tree. Yes, those are all. Those do seem to be deciduous trees. Um, but uh, the main pine woods, I believe, are the ones over in. I'm looking at the map again. Over in uh, Nan Amlong East, and 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 further from there, and like the north of uh, the Trollshaws as well. Yeah. Oh, north of Bree too has. Yeah, that's 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 like all the classic Ruda. Ruda had quite a bit of territory. Yeah. Um. Anyway, what's um? What's Mosey? What's Mosey? I'm not, you know. Don't fall off. <laughs> yeah. Was, like I almost did. That was close. Yeah. I'm so just glad I'm not on a war steed. Let's head back. Yeah, exactly. I can turn my horse in 30 seconds. Let's head back to the road. Yeah. Uh, Wiggins' horse is a heavy uh, war steed, so, I mean, it corners like a barge. <laughs> yeah, I just got one of those from my... Uh, my champion and it's just like well it's basically driving a tank yes exactly you basically just ride your horse with the knowledge that you're the most dangerous thing and nothing can stand in your way anyway so why bother turning that's right now these are natural rock formations down here oh yeah i always found these really interesting but yeah they don't look like natural rock formations uh i've seen weird stuff like this before actually um in yeah. ireland yeah, no, I believe it. I believe they have it. weirder ones. They have ones that grow natural hexagons out there. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's... it's. I, I mean, I do think what they're going for is natural rock formations. I mean, you can see that. You can see that. Yeah, you the, get that with layers of sediment when you yeah. have uh, the lower layers are more sandy, so the wind blows them away. And then the tough ones remain. So you get this fun layer cake look. Whenever I... Uh, uh, whenever I come over the rise there and I see these ones, these stones over on the left, it always makes me think of, uh, it always makes me think of the Chronicles of Narnia. I think of the horse and his boy and, and the tombs by Tashban. Uh, yeah. Of course, it's not in a desert, so the setting yeah, is nothing yeah. like right, but just the shape of those stones always makes me think of Lewis's description of the, cool. of the tombs. Sorry, um, I know more about rocks this week than I usually do. My kids are studying it at school. Well, there you go. <laughs> there you go. And yes, Aragorn, that's a goblin camp, I believe, down there. Yes, it is. They're squatting amongst the... That's... Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a pretty good defensible place. It's a labyrinth. It is. Yes. All right. Let's uh, continue on up the road here. And it's... Uh, it's getting late, and I spent longer than I expected at Minas Run. Maybe we'll get to. Maybe we'll get up to the. <laughs> well, no, to the dwarves. Yeah. I wanted to go to Althrakar first. Oh, Althrakar, yeah. Yes. Yep. Now, of course, we did a tour of the elf camp when we after we met Gildor, and we came here to see where Gildor was in the game. Um, we're not. We're in our 
general survey and tour of the lands, we are we are coming organically into the area near where we found Gildor. Okay, so having climbed up into the highlands here now, the land up here is relatively flat. Now we're getting those pine trees. Yep, yep. A healthy mix, I think. Coniferous and deciduous. Okay, now we have a river crossing. Notice this cruder wooden bridge that's thrown across these old stone... Uh, yep, another makeshift save. Yep, so you can see that they're how they're using the ruin. Now let's do a quick inspection of our ruin over here. Who controlled this river crossing? Probably Rudauer. I'm going to say Rudauer, yeah. That's my money. But, but let's, uh, let's see what we Where's see. Uh, yep. Uh, I see some plinths here. Yep, we got definitely yep. Rudauer all around here. Six star and the crown. Six pointed star and the, and the woodland crown, yes. And the scepter on the... Yeah. Yeah. The colonnades here. Right on. Very Roman, very Roman looking. Tops. Yes. Dork, dark column. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, yes, Eric, have I agree? This river crossing would have been extremely, extremely important. Um, uh, not because, of course, this is because we're not really close to the frontier to Farnost. I mean, we're a little bit close, but not all that close. But of course, if they had Minas Run, Minas Run is the would have been their first line of defense or their you know their last outpost uh, over there towards uh, uh, towards Farnost. Uh, but this would, of course, been crucial for communication between I, Minas Run would have been completely cut off without this uh, river crossing here. So. Oh, nice. You can see the peak, then, peaks up then, behind Fornos. Then Wethern's almost completely cut off well by itself. Yes. Yes. So this would have been a key, key um, strategic point to completely conquering Nan Wethern. Yes, exactly. Um, yes, Dime is right. Uh, the, there's a ranger over here, Orthon, uh, whose campfire next to which he hangs out is over here. Uh, and he is, uh, as Dime is reminding me, uh, uh, a ranger who is into maps and geography. And uh, sending us to do things while yes. he stays here. Exactly. Well, you That's know, what we were talking about. They have to stay here and watch. They don't have time to pick flowers. Exactly. This field won't watch itself. Um, but again, we can see, notice the, the two rangers, well, three rangers that we've seen, right? We've, we've, we've encountered rangers in exactly three locations so far. Um, here in the North Downs, right? One here by this uh, river crossing, uh, 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 some up in Emon uh, uh, Rythe, right? That lookout hill, which overlooks the entire Fornost Valley. Um, and then one up right next to the entrance to the Fornost Valley, uh, who would be able to give the first warning if, you know, the unquiet dead who live in, in Fornost decide to come south. Um, so, uh, so yeah, this is, um, uh, it, it is interesting to see how they are sort of tactically, uh, tactically placed. Well, let's ride up and find the dwarf settlement. 
but we want to have time. We'll we'll take the time to we'll start there and look at that next uh, time. We, I think we want to get back on the main road. Because, yeah, uh, I've gotten lost in these hills a couple of times. Yeah, and I don't want to wander. There are bear dens and and things, and yeah. no no point in bringing Links our newbies down. among them. So There's yeah, let's the let's head back down here to the road. Going to wait for folks. Ooh, windmills. All right, lots of farmland up here. Gold. Now there's some quartz right there. That's where you get some of your statue. That's right. <laughs> Is everyone in front of me or behind me? I can't tell. <laughs> I think I took a massive shortcut. I'll, I'll meet you at the other car. Okay, that's fine. Oh, here's the crossroads. I'll, you guys at the crossroads yet? Uh, almost. Okay, I'll just hang out here. Yeah, you're in front of us. I stopped to wait for folks to collect from uh, the. I had things chasing. I was. <laughs> you had things chasing you. I understand. <laughs> A bright okay. Man, I I haven't been up here when I was this low level in a long time. It's kind of a fun experience again. <laughs> Just looking out over the terrain from here. Right, we've got hills off to the east. The Boxton, Boxton Pass over there. Yes. And then you've got the larger mountains up to the north. you got your swamp land down yes. south. Yes. Down over there on the other side of the rise. Got uh, elves at the bayou. Right. South from here is where we get down to the elves. You can see another another ruin on the top of that hill, what looks like it was a watchtower. Cause that's, that was, I think that's a beacon. Is it a beacon? Like, yeah, I keep hoping there's going to be a quest for it, and there never is. I know there's a beacon up here, up to the north. Yeah. 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 Yes. Um. So right, the Gildor and Glorian and and uh, and those elves that we met before, who are having their little troll problem, are down in the south. And uh, up here is a beacon. No, I was looking at the hill in the south. Actually, there's a ruin oh, on top of the hill in the south, uh, and that I it might be a be I, I think it was a tower. I think that was a watchtower, but it's uh, but this one is definitely as you can see as we get closer to it. Yeah. That's definitely. I, I discovered that thing by accident the first time yeah. I saw it. I just never noticed it. I think because back then I was running fairly low graphics too, and it just kind of from a distance blended in with the hills. I was doing one of the flower quests and yes, that's exactly how climbed up the slopes thing. of that hill, and I'm like, oh, it's a beacon! And then you couldn't light it. Like, oh, yes, why? exactly. I want to light it. Exactly. Want to see what will happen. I want to start a quest. I want to draw some aggro of something. Okay, and so we can see as we're coming through here, notice the the cleaner stone. This is not a ruin. Nope. Right? And uh, you can see, of course, by the the uh, interestingly angular arch that we are clearly in a totally different kind of architecture. The art deco designs of the dwarf. That's right. That's right. So we'll come in and I'll introduce myself to the stable master here. Oh, I hate that bridge. <laughs> okay. All that right. always makes me flinch when I go under this one. Here. <laughs> yes, it's like the Erie Canal song. Um, oh, yeah. 
Uh, <laughs> exactly. All right. So we'll explore uh, the uh, the this this little dwarf encampment up here um, uh, next time. So we'll 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 begin up here. We'll pro- we'll. We'll figure out how we'll travel up here uh, for next time. But this is where we'll pick up next time. And we'll come here and then we'll head down uh, towards Esteldine from here. Um, Are we going to have a delay for Little One's Halloween candy getting? Or I think we're going to be on time. Um, no, I th- well, I think I'm going to I think I'm going to do it at the normal time next okay. time. So I, I might be on late. It depends on whether yeah. my, my baby's sleeping schedule has been messed up enough. I understand. I understand. We'll sort it out. But, um, yeah. okay. Well, I'll definitely be here for the riding around part. Cool. Excellent. Very good. All right. All right. Well, thanks, everybody, for joining us this week. I look forward to another week next week as we uh, boldly head towards the Barrow Downs in the story. We'll, of course, be going down and exploring the Barrow Downs in-game uh, after we get th- I think I want to get inside the Barrow in the story before we yes. head down to the Barrow Downs. So uh, we still have probably maybe... A couple of weeks before we get so there. Exactly. Maybe. Maybe we'll get there. All right. Thanks very much, everybody. I will see you guys uh, in a week. Bye now. Thank you, Pine Yes. Yes, definitely. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Thanks for joining me on this epic exploration of The Lord of the Rings and of Standing Stone's video adaptation of Tolkien's story. If you are having even half the fun I'm having on this journey, I hope you will consider supporting the project by donating at signumuniversity.org fund.